Hello Fantasists, and welcome to Start a Quest, a podcast where we look at classic video games through the eyes of a level 1 white mage. Episode number 10, where we'll be experiencing the epic adventure of Final Fantasy VII. I am your host, the foul captain of this airship, Alessandro Crolla, alongside the queen of the etc. and the star of this podcast, Jen Overhughes. Hello! How are you doing today? Knackered. Yes, we are recording this on January 1st, so Happy New Year. Happy New Year, fuckers. Yes, we are both also hung over from party last night. Yeah, I needed two Red Bulls to stay awake today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can you believe we've already made it to our 10th episode? Not really. I mean, I can because I've been having fun with this, but also time's just flown so fast. Yeah, by the time the listeners actually listen to this, it'll be the 11th episode, technically. Yeah, we've put out a little bonus episode where we talk about how far we've come. Yes. I mean, it's not been that far, but it's been somewhere. We've went somewhere. Yes, it was a brilliant and wonderful episode, wouldn't you agree? Yes. Uh, we've not recorded it yet. <laughs> no, we thought we'd get the first half of Final Fantasy VII done because we expect this one to be a long playthrough. Yeah. As this is our 10th episode, and given how huge this game is, I thought we'd take a moment to reaffirm the mission statement of this whole show. To anyone new who's joined us and hasn't gone back to listen to our first episode. Which, fair. So what is your history with video games? I'm a very casual gamer. Yeah? A lot of the gaming I did was when I was a young teenager. And it stretches to The Sims 2, Animal Crossing, World of Warcraft for a bit, Super Smash Bros, which was my social life when I was about 15. A point I think you've made in about seven episodes now. Yeah, because it keeps coming up. (laughs) Apart from that, no next to nothing. There's lots of video game references that fly around here and there that it goes over my head. But you are massively into your gaming YouTubers, though. Yeah, a lot of my knowledge is watching YouTubers. I watch an ungodly amount of YouTube. See, that's where the podcast comes in. I, being someone who grew up with gaming since as early as I can remember, watching my dad and my brother play video games, I'm here to teach you about these classics of gaming that you'll probably know the name of for most of these episodes, but you just don't know anything about them past the common knowledge. And even then, maybe not that either. No, I think referring to Jill's partner as Billy Bunting in the Resident Evil episode is a great example of how the memory is there, but it's not entirely correct. I watched Cad Icarus's video on Resident Evil and I forgot Barry's name. But that's the fun. We always do these intros where I interview Jen before she's played the game and it is so much fun seeing how your thoughts change in this first part, how different they are after our intermission. Yeah, literally right after recording the first half of the Pokemon episode, it finally dawned on me what Pokemon stands for. (laughs) Pocket Monsters. I floundered around trying to figure that out and the answer was right under my nose. Hopefully we can take you along with us in my journey as a student as you take me through this curriculum of classic video games Mm -hmm. and have a bit of fun with us along the way. Most episodes I'll pretend to be smart and put my arts degree to use. How successfully I managed that is up to interpretation, as most texts are. Yes, I think... Any intelligence you had went out the window when Kirby was so cute. Yeah, my brain is still trying to claw its way back into my skull after that. (laughs) I hope that we can also be accessible to new or casual gamers. Yeah, we have heard people who don't 
play games quite commonly tell us their feedback on the podcast and they love learning about this stuff just as you do yeah as well as providing a few cheap laughs for the more experienced gamers who've mm. played what i'm going to be playing each episode already yeah as we are at the 10 episode mark i do have this question for you how are you finding this project so far i'm really enjoying it i'm having a lot of fun i'm really glad to hear that because so am i this has been a lot of fun to do so far and you have no idea how hyped i am you're about to learn about Final fantasy 7 yeah it's about time so before we get on with this game Let's just set the stage and tell me everything that you know about Final Fantasy VII. It's a JRPG. Okay. We've covered this before, so very briefly, what's a JRPG? It's a style of role-playing game that originated in Japan Mm -hmm. that focuses more on team building rather than levelling up an individual character like Western RPGs do. Right. This will be our officially second, but technically third, JRPG. Yeah. How have you been finding them so far? I really like them. You do? Yeah. I did a blog post about my favourite games that we've covered here, and the one and two spot has been taken by Earthbound and Pokemon Far Red and Leaf Green, mm-hmm. because I really enjoy them. I'm quite looking forward to this one. Okay. More specifically to the game then, what do you know about Final Fantasy VII? It's the game that brought JRPGs to the West. Not entirely, but it is a massive stepping stone especially in Europe. Mm-hmm. For the longest time, Nintendo had this idea that America likes JRPGs, but Europe didn't. Right. Nintendo being the one that would give this advice to these developers, and then a lot of these developers didn't release their games in the UK. So, while this is the very first Final Fantasy game to be released in the UK, in America, this is technically the fourth Final Fantasy game. Yeah, some of their seven Final Fantasy games, they decided, I will not release this one to the West, we're not going to bother with that. Mm-hmm. Not going to release that one to the West either, just to confuse everyone. So I imagine like someone in the UK will be like, hang on, where are the other six? Even in America. In America, they got Final Fantasies 1, 4, and 6. 4 was called 2, and 6 was called 3. So if you're an American following this franchise, you've seen it go 1, 2, 3, 7. And turn around and went, where the fuck's the other three? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, while America got games like Earthbound, again, didn't get it over here. So to a lot of people in the UK and in Europe, this was one of our first major exposures to the JRPG style. Yeah. So I was close, but not quite. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. Anything about Final Fantasy VII itself that you know? About its story or about its events? Um, I know a lot of the character names thanks to Frederick Knudsen's documentary on the Final Fantasy House. Yeah, there was no way we are going to get through this intro and you not discuss this. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially, there's this cult of nerds called Soul Bonders who believe slash try to con other people into thinking that their souls are incarnated from video game characters. Yeah, so these group of fans who are very much into Final Fantasy VII all got together to live in this one house and hijinks ensue, but not in a sitcom way. In a a deeply abusive and sad way. Yes. I don't want to spoil the video itself too much, though. That's one I highly recommend you check out after listening to this. I love Down the Rabbit Hole. It's such an incredible series that Frederick does. Keep up the good work. Looking forward to the Eve video whenever it comes out. (laughs) I think there's also some cross-dressing involved. (laughs) <laughs> what makes you think that? Um. Well, in your old flat, 
there is like a cute little fan drawing of two of the characters. And you did tell me it was a scene from the game where one of the characters had to do some cross-dressing. It was all this cute hijinks. <laughs> but I don't know where that happens or if that's just fan canon. I hope that it's actually real and is not just me regurgitating some fangirl's head canon. You're going to find out. <laughs> okay then. So there's probably some character names that you know off the top of your head. What characters can you name from this game? Um, Cloud. Okay, who's he? He's the main character. Mm-hmm. He's got this blonde spiky hair, mm-hmm. a waistcoat and boots. <laughs> That's it. That's all I know. I don't know how much personality he has outside of hair, <laughs> but I'll, I'm sure I'll find out. Do you know anything of his backstory or his personality or anything like that? I think he's pretending to be someone else. Okay. I don't remember where I got that from, but maybe. Um, there's Ares. Okay, and who's Aerith? Oh, not Ares. Hmm. <laughs> who's Aerith? Uh, Aerith, right. <laughs> She's got a braid in her hair, like a big long one, mm-hmm. and a pink dress. Mm-hmm. There's one particularly iconic scene in the game involving Aerith. Mm-hmm. Whoa, whoa, that's a massive spoiler you just dropped there. Oh no, sorry! <laughs> no, it's, we'll play it quite in our first half, but this is something that will come up in the second half, definitely. Yeah, so... I got it spoiled because of Internet Historian. He used that scene as, like, a kind of sketch of one of the fake endings that J.K. Rowling had to write when she was writing the last Harry Potter book, because mm-hmm. people were literally going through a recycling bin to try and figure out what's going to happen there are so many spoilers getting leaked everywhere it was a whole thing but clearly wasn't that much of a spoiler considering at the time they spoiled it in the trailer of the game yes they did i saw that trailer i watched that and went what the fuck is going on there i spent the entire game wondering until the event happened it's like when they advertised thor ragnarok and instead of having the hulk fighting in the gladiator ring with thor and having that be like a twist that people go to the cinema and find out then. They had it in the trailer. Yeah, and Hulk was on the poster. You couldn't have just left that as a nice twist so then fans could have like went nuts over it online. It is on that level. And I can't help but be just a bit annoyed. I don't think that's what the game devs wanted. What are the characters can you name? So there's Tifa. Who's Tifa? Tifa is like the dark haired girl next door childhood friend of Cloud. Mm-hmm. Apparently she's a fan favourite among thirsty young men everywhere, especially at that time. Not me though, I am Team Aerith all the way. Any other characters then? Next character, Genova. Yes, I knew this one would come up, which is why I put it in her intro. Yeah, she is a alien queen. Like, not like the xenomorph alien queen, but like she looks a bit like a drainy with like goat horns and blue skin and stuff. Mm-hmm. And she's hooked up to this machine thing. It's kind of funny how the main villain who started the Final Fantasy house also named herself after one of the villains of Final Fantasy VII. Yes. Do you remember what the other girl named herself? Uh, Dr. Hodo. Hodo. Okay, right. Horo? That's the... <laughs> Not that sort of horror, you dirty fuck. Get your mind out the gar. <laughs> the mad scientist Hozo is 
fixated on the alien queen and like works the machine you can't make it up that these people who run this cult name themselves after two of the villains talk about foreshadowing (laughs) so are they the only villains of the game then no there's sephiroth as well right how do you know sephiroth who's the main big bad i think he was a special character in smash bros for a bit He's got, like, long white hair, Mm -hmm. angsty anime boy. I think there's, like, one clip that takes one of the scenes out of context where he calls Cloud a twink. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure where you got this from. (laughs) I think it might have been one of those mishaired things that no one can unhear now. Moving on. (laughs) There's Zach. Okay. Who... I only really know because he is the protagonist in the Final Fantasy House saga. Apparently, Zack is a very minor character. Yes, I do believe that was Frederick Newton's wording, the very minor character, Zack. <laughs> yeah, very minor in Final Fantasy VII, but very major in the Final Fantasy House. Yes, you're going to learn how minor he is. I don't think I've gotten all of them. Far from that. <laughs> Yeah, I know that you've got like a ragtag team of misfits who mm-hmm. like, you know, go and I think they save the world from Sephiroth. I think What Sephiroth done that needs to save the world from him? Uh be evil. <laughs> to take over the world. <laughs> okay. I actually don't know, I'm completely guessing. So you don't know what happens in the plot of this game at all? No, apart from the scene. I know virtually nothing. Do you know much about the setting? Uh, no. But I know that in each Final Fantasy game, it's got a different setting. Okay. So you're expecting just, what, kingdoms and dragons? Or are you expecting something else? I remember seeing tiny bits of gameplay, and it kind of looked steampunk, mm-hmm. for lack of a better term, or dieselpunk. Mm-hmm. I think dieselpunk's probably the better way of putting it. So yeah, don't expect many castles and dragons in this game. Yeah, nah, I'm not going to expect that. Though that's not to say you're getting none. So you're saying there might be a dragon. (laughs) Oh, is Sephiroth the dragon? You said he's a man with white hair. But is he secretly a dragon? (laughs) Wait, they're all dragons. Yes, Jen, they're all dragons. Everyone in the game is a dragon. (laughs) Someone has made that fanfiction where they're all dragons. Yes, and they're all doing vile things to each other. Not all fanfiction's like that. That's a bit unfair. There's a lot of fanfiction like that, but not all of it. Do you know anything about who made this game? Is it Sega? No. Sega's friend Claudio? (laughs) No. Sony? Not entirely, but they do have a role to play in this game. Uh, Sony and Sony's friend Zack? (laughs) No. Sony's role is a lot like with Resident Evil. This was another game that was going to be coming out for Nintendo's upcoming console. But, again, because Nintendo 64 was massively less than what they were expecting, this is another company that abandons Nintendo to bugger off and release games in PlayStation. Oh, is it Capcom? No. Ah, because, yeah, that company sure did do that a lot. You're going to find as we get more into PlayStation 1 stuff that they all did. <laughs> yeah. What are you expecting from this game, then? As we've said, it's going to be pretty long. Mm-hmm. I remember hearing a magical 60-hour number. Depends on how much we indulge in side quest stuff. Yeah, like that's not to say 60 hours in one sitting. God, no. Little chunks at a time, but in total you'd be spending about 60 hours or so playing it. I mean, I say that it might take a while. 
you also thought the Earthbound would take me ages to play, but because I got so addicted to it and had to know what happened next, I didn't breeze through it, but I did get through it a lot faster than we thought we would. So who knows? We'll see what happens. I'm expecting it to have a fairly deep story and at least one interesting character. Do you know how big your party is in this game? Is it more than four? Yes. Do you have more than four in a fight at a time, though? No. I've watched you play some Persona games, and you've got more people in your party, but you choose four to go and fight with. That's the system you're going for here, but it's three, not four. Oh, yeah, yeah. What do you think your reaction is going to be to this game? Do you think you're going to enjoy the story? Do you think you're going to get gripped by it? Do you think it's not going to appeal to you? I hope I'm going to enjoy it. Mm Mm-hmm. I've enjoyed the GRPGs I've played so far. It's got good reviews. So yeah, I'm expecting to quite enjoy this. Okay. This game is a big one for me. This was my very first GRPG. I played it when I was 10 years old and it absolutely gripped me. Yeah. I wouldn't call it my favourite Final Fantasy game. If I was being objective, I'd say 6. And if I was being unobjective, I'd say 8. Yeah, I remember you telling me that before. I think I watched you play Final Fantasy XV, the most recent one. Yes. It's a really beautiful world, but as far as I saw, the game's like quite empty and half finished. Mm, that is unfortunately true. Which is a real shame, because it's so much potential. I think the biggest problem with Final Fantasy right now is that they make the games very visually complex and mm-hmm. don't make enough of the systems fun. Right. So I'm not having the greatest amount of fun with some of the latest entries. Yeah. Also, there's Final Fantasy XIV is the MMORPG, right? Yes. Which I'd quite like to try at some point. As someone who likes World of Warcraft, I've been recommended it, but it's finding time. Absolutely. Mm. As much as we obviously could play the remake of Final Fantasy that came out a few years back, creatively called Final Fantasy VII Remake. Truly inspired. I would actually like to do this episode before the year 2030 when that game gets finished. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of moving pieces. And is there not like 500 iterations of Final Fantasy VII's story? The Final Fantasy series, it's like different stories in different games. But other than Final Fantasy VII, where they have made a whole slew of games around it. Yeah. So instead, we're going to be playing this one again on the PS Classic that we use for Resident Evil. Ah, yes. My best friend. Yes. My pal. My good time, boy. (laughs) (laughs) I love that show so much. Like with Resident Evil, that's purely for the sake of having something that easily plugs into our HDTV. Yeah. But if we wanted to, we could easily play this on the original PlayStation 1, because I still have my copy that I kept from as a kid. Oh, wow. Oh, it's got a bit... It's cellotape and cracks on it. Yes. That mother crack in the back of the case. Yes, the case is cracked, but the discs are fine. I guess that kind of wear and tear is to be expected of games. You've had that since you were 10. Anything in the back that catches your interest? Someone... Yeah, that's related to the spoiler. That's related to the spoiler. A tavern and a demon fire-breathing boy. (laughs) And some cloud snowboarding? Yes. It's just like tacking the power of the juju. (laughs) So let's go into our rules of gameplay. Okay. Rule one, like with our Earthbound episode, there will be no changing of the character names to your own choices. Oh, you could change the names if you wanted to. You can, but we're not doing that. Yeah, that's fair enough. However, I am exercising my right to change two of them to fix them. Right, okay. One was translated wrong, and the other just sounds wrong in dialogue. Right, so I can't change the name of the dog. Do you know if there actually is a dog in this game? No. (laughs) I hope so. Rule two. This is a long game. 
So we're probably not going to do all the side quest stuff. Yeah. Or at least we might not talk about it that much in our second half. Mm. I will, however, make sure you complete two side quests as doing them will add two new characters to your party for the adventure. Nice. Rule three. As you saw with the physical copy, the game was broken up into three discs. As a measuring point to our listeners, our cutoff point will be the middle of disc two when we get the airship for the first time, which is the earliest point I'll allow you to stop. Although I will say we've not used any of these quitting points yet, but I'll keep offering them to make sure that you're not playing these games beyond the point where you're not having fun anymore. Yeah, especially for something that's this long. Yes. Mm. If you're able to finish Sonic 2, I think you'll be fine finishing this game. Yeah, yeah. So you have your soul bond. Yes. And you have your knowledge of... Yes. Are you ready for your seventh Final Fantasy? More than ever, my sweet syrup pie. All right, let's get started. Welcome back. We expected this would be a long playthrough, and we were wrong to expect that. Yeah. We got through this in our usual time frame of four weeks. Yeah. I was pleasantly surprised. I was very worried that I wouldn't be able to complete this in a timely manner. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if I did our usual thing, where we play it, like, mostly weekends, instead I played it every night that I could. Mm -hmm. Like, every single night, regardless of how I was feeling. Which may not have been the best for note-taking, or at least initial note-taking, but I got through it and I really, really enjoyed the game, which also helped. I really wanted to know what the next part of the story was going to be. I actually got a bit annoyed at you at points for interrupting me to ask me to take notes. I'm basically going through very long sections and massive story reveals. I'm like, Jen, we have to stop here just so you can write down your thoughts to get to this part of the recording. Yeah, I mean, I knew it was like, you know, I had to do it, but still, I think that's a very good sign. So I'm guessing then your immediate thoughts on the game are positive ones. Yes, <laughs> yeah, they were. This game is really ahead of its time. Story-wise, it absolutely is. We're barely halfway through the Screaming Twenties, where it's a technophile dystopia, and the planet is dying because of the corrupt people in power. and. We are reliant on fossil fuels. We're all screwed. Or at least <laughs> that's the sentiment. That is the zeitgeist. We'll get into the whole story, but I think really high level is that Final Fantasy VII absolutely taps into those same current day concerns for humanity. Yeah. How did you find the combat system of this game compared to Earthbound? In Earthbound, you get as much time as you need to decide how you want to fight something. Mm-hmm. I tended to spread out my attacks between multiple enemies, if there were any. But with Final Fantasy VII, it's timed. You get a very short time to make a decision on what move you're going to make. I basically had to spam attack one enemy. Then, when it died, another enemy. And then the next, depending on how many there were. Yeah. Where Pokemon and Earthbound both worked on turn-based mechanics. Yeah. So you pick your move, your opponent would pick their move, whoever had the higher speed would go first. You'd all do your turns and then pick your next moves. Final Fantasy VII is different. Every participant in the fight, whether it be player or enemy, 
has a timed bar. Mm-hmm. Once that bar fills up, you can then act. Now, that's great. It means you know when your next turn is coming. But it does come with the side effect that if you take too long to pick your moves, your enemy will fill their bar, do their attack, and then fill a second bar and do their attack. Mm-hmm. Now, we were playing on the original speed setting. I can quicken it, but we chose not to. Yeah. And I did turn on a feature where the game would stop the time bars filling if you were in one of the deeper menus. For example, the magic menu or the items menu. Yeah, which helped. But if you're on your initial menu, which has like attack, magic, summon, item, if you're just looking at that menu and deciding what to do, time will tick and enemies will get moves. A lot of kind of quick thinking when it comes to that. You can't faff around too much Mm -hmm. when it comes to choosing what your moves are. You don't get the chance to do that, no. If you don't make a move, like, now, your enemy's going to get the upper hand. Mm-hmm. Which, when I was first learning the controls, was... It was quite anxiety-inducing. Yeah, that is one very strange, peculiar element to the controls of this game, wasn't there? Mm. So with the PlayStation controller, instead of the lettered controls we had before... It's symbols. Mm -hmm. Usually with PlayStation, the X button is select and the circle is cancel. Mm -hmm. But in Final Fantasy VII, it's the other way around. Mm -hmm. That threw me for a while. I was still mixing those up even right up until the end of the game. Yeah, this is a thing. If you actually look at the PlayStation controller, the circle and the cross are designed to be a yes and a no button. I think that with the PlayStation controller, especially with those grips... Your thumb is naturally drawn to the X button as the select button. Mm-hmm. So it's always been something that a lot of PlayStation games used was the X for select. So you did have that hindrance throughout the whole game. Yeah. Thankfully, they fixed that by Final Fantasy VIII. You can technically fix it in this game as well, but the problem is, is that the game's quite bad that if you replace the circle and the X buttons in the menu, it doesn't replace it in some of the abundance of mini games you get throughout the game. So... The description will say, press the circle button to do something, but it means press the X button now because you switch circle and X. Already getting used to one type of gameplay and then, bam, minigame, other controls. you got to do it now. Ah. (laughs) And there is a lot of them in this game, isn't there? There are a lot of minigames. We're probably not, we may actually get to all of them just by virtue of most of them appear in all the stories. Yes, the game is quite good at least making the minigame story related the first time you encounter it before bunging it into this game's arcade world that we will get to in the story. Is there anything special about this game's combat system compared to how it was in Earthbound beyond the timed system? Uh, There were summons Mm -hmm. where you summon a type of god or something that's more powerful than you to do one big massive attack. Yes, the Final Fantasy series is quite well known for its summons. And they have nothing to do with the rest of the story? In this game, no. By Final Fantasy VIII, they become quite a key part of the story. Yeah. For our purposes, they're just there, vibing, chilling, waiting for someone to say, hey, can you attack that guy there? And they're like, yeah, let's get torn into him. Hanging out his materia balls like a Pokeball. Yeah. I choose you, Ifrit. <laughs> I choose you, Odin. <laughs> Go and you slice the fucking head off. <laughs> Odin. That's something we should probably explain right now is the magic system this game. It's something the game got quite well known for. Oh my god, yeah, I didn't even think of the magic system. It is weird. How do you use magic in this game? 
your abilities come in the form of little dots called materia. Yeah, the little glass balls, essentially. Yeah. Each member of your party gets a certain number of slots to put their materia in. Mm -hmm. So the game is governed by five different types of materia. Yeah. Do you name all five? Um, The summons are red. Mm -hmm. The green materia is for magical abilities. Yeah, they are the spells themselves. Mm -hmm. The blue materia is a kind of companion to the green. Yes. So if you have the blue materia all and you attach it to the fire green materia, it'll now make fire hit all opponents. Yeah. And there are purple ones, which are kind of miscellaneous combat type materia. Yeah, they'll do stats or give you a set ability. So when I was deciding what Cloud could do, I gave him an ability called Cover, where whenever someone in your party was attacked, he would dash in front of them and take the hit for them. Mm -hmm. I also equipped him with Counter, which whenever he was attacked, he would do a counterattack. Yes. So then those two work together where if someone attacks, Cloud blocks it and then hits them back. Yeah. Which was really, really handy. Mm-hmm. So there's one colour left. Do you remember what the colour was? I think it was yellow. Right. What did the yellow materia do? I think that was something that affected your stats. No, that would be the purple that did stats. Yellow are for special abilities. Oh, yeah. There's one very handy yellow materia called enemy skill. Mm-hmm. Where if someone in your party has enemy skill equipped they can learn different attacks that an enemy can can do. Yes, there's about 20 or 30 enemy skills in the game that this one materia can learn and then use in other fights. Those other ones like steal or double attack or sense. Yeah, where you can check out an enemy's like stats and health and things. It doesn't automatically display how much health an enemy has or how much magic it has. You have to use sense in a turn to actually know your enemy. Exactly. And that's how you can also learn its weaknesses. Mm-hmm. So how did you find the materia system? I found it quite confusing. How so? Well, it's not something I'm used to, and I wasn't sure how to pair certain things up. Mm-hmm. There's a tactical skill involved in picking what materia goes to who. You can arrange things however you want, which is really cool, but it threw me a little bit at first. Learning it as a kid was quite tough as well. Now I've got the point where I know the system quite well. Mm-hmm. Try and work out what green magic you're using for each character. Supplement that with blue magic where suitable. Try and then pick purple and yellow magic in a way that complements that character. Mm-hmm. For example, that enemy skill materia you gave to Cloud for a long time because Cloud was blocking these moves. So he was learning them a lot more. Yeah. That worked quite well with the cover materia. There's also a thing you had that increased his defensive abilities that you gave to Cloud as well because he was blocking all this damage. Your weapons and armor affect how many little pieces of materia you can equip to each character. Mm-hmm. Usually as the game went on, you got items with more and more slots. Mm-hmm. It's also a bit like in Earthbound, where the armor was interchangeable for the most part. Yeah. But the weapons were unique to each character. Mm-hmm. You could also equip accessories. Mm-hmm. It would give you like little boosts of other things or protect you from certain status effects. So one would protect you from being poisoned Mm -hmm. or from fire attacks. Or give you a 10% boost in strength. Yeah, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. 
that was kind of interchangeable. It wasn't something I really massively bothered with too much, but they are useful. I think for you, you found the one that blocks all status ailments. You gave that to your healer so he can't be affected by anything. Everyone else, it was just, ah, whatever, give that person this accessory. Yeah, fine. yeah. We didn't talk about this in the Resident Evil episode, but I do think we have to talk about this now, of how this game makes the backgrounds for each scene. It was a 2D image with the illusion of looking more 3D. Yes. This was one of PlayStation's biggest tricks, was using something called pre-rendered backgrounds. Yeah. Essentially, you take the background, you draw it on a PC, you save that as a JPEG, and then you cut around it in a way that a character can run through the JPEG by going behind images. Yeah. So the model of, say, Cloud would be 3D. And would then be drawn to interact with this JPEG image. You know, to do things like get smaller as he goes further into the image. Or to go behind something which would be like a block between the viewer and the image. Or if there's anything he needs to jump over, it would just do like a little jump animation and it just moves across to the other side. Yes. Which I thought was really neat. They did this as well in Resident Evil, which is why Resident Evil looked like it was made with security camera footage. Mm-hmm. Because they were just set images. I actually didn't notice that. That was one where it was very well concealed. With Final Fantasy, you notice it after a wee while. Mm-hmm. But that's only because you're looking at the screen for longer. And they are beautiful images. So they are. It's a great visually stunning world. It is. It's really, really vivid. They also use this to their advantage in a lot of big ways. Because the game has a lot of these cutscenes, which were, again, just pre-rendered videos that were saved as video files on the disc. And you have to think, when it comes to th- saving things like video files, which by its nature was always quite hard to save to a cartridge, saved a lot easier onto a CD. Mm-hmm. It goes to explain a lot of why this game was pulled away from Nintendo to the PlayStation, taking advantage of CD drives. Mm-hmm. And other things that I'll discuss in a moment. I mean, the third disc, which we're going to get to, is mostly the end cutscene. Yeah, which is about 10-15 minutes long. It's all mostly CG. Mm -hmm. You also get your usual items. Healing potions, potions to increase your stats. I think one thing the Final Fantasy series is quite famous for is what it calls its revive items, which were called... Phoenix Downs. Yes, that's supposed to be a phoenix feather, essentially. Ah, like the duvets. Like down. Yes, so it's supposed to be like a phoenix feather that revives your party. Not like down the direction. I mean, if it was a direction, you'd surely want it to be phoenix up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> also, the item to restore magic is called ether. <laughs> Insert cryptocurrency joke here. See, for me, I just can't imagine it being like an ether-soaked rag. Oh, God. Here, here Cloud, take this rag and get your magic back. Oh, oh I'm feeling magical now. <laughs> weirdly magical. <laughs> you're terrible but yeah it's just a lot of the same items you got in earthbound just named it this unique way yeah at the end of battles though i think one thing you did like is the victory fanfare oh the victory fanfare is so good there's a little trumpet bit at the first bit after that when you've got the screen where you're showing their stat numbers go up and the leveling up there's like this synth bit that's it's so silky it makes my ears so happy that trumpet part has been in every final fantasy game it's actually quite standard for the franchise yeah 
with favourite sounds, it's up there with the little glistening synth at the Mario Kart Double Dash menu. Oh, it's such a good sound. So let's just talk about the design of this game. Final Fantasy VII was released in January 31st in 1997 in Japan by Squaresoft. Square Enix now. Square Enix now, yes. The game was then released in August of that year around the world, which is how it ended up on my Christmas list that year. Really? Yeah, yeah, I got it for Christmas. Ah. The man at the helm of the design process was its producer, Hironobu Sakaguchi. Sakaguchi created the Final Fantasy series, but by this point had graduated to the role of producer so he could oversee the project from the highest level. Right. He had a hand in all aspects in development, from writing all the way through to design. Wow. He did have his disciple on hand for directing duties, Yoshinori Kitase. He's been working as an event scripter for years, but had risen up to become a director to lead the project underneath Shakaguchi and decide what really ends up on the disc. See, that's something that a lot of writers kind of dream of. The Final Fantasy series has been running on the Nintendo system since the 80s. The name Final Fantasy itself being quite a direct name since Sakaguchi was planning to make Final Fantasy his last ever video game before he quit out of the industry after some frustrations. The first game, though, sold incredibly well, and now we've made it to seven more. With this seventh installment, however, the team were going to do something big. They just finished up a side game called Chrono Trigger, which I'll not say too much on it as it will be getting its own episode at some point in the future. Yay! After finishing that game, which does involve a lot of time travel elements of going into the future, Ooh. and the previous success of Final Fantasy VI, where they did a bit more of a steampunk-style world, the team decided to change their style heavily with this next installment, and they were going to take Final Fantasy 3D. Squaresoft got a lot of training with the Silicon Graphics computers, made famous for being the system Pixar used to make the Toy Story movie back in 1985. Ah, oh, cool! They did a famous tech demo where they took Final Fantasy VI characters and rendered them in 3D. Again, that got a lot of people excited for what was going to come next from the project. And as we discussed before, they took the project away from Nintendo to the much more powerful PlayStation, which was better suited for doing their polygonal designs. Along with all this new hardware, they were also going to do something very different for the setting. As we said in our intro, they went away from their usual castles and knights stuff and took it more into the world of corporations and pollution. Yeah. The real castles and dragons of these days. Our starting location especially has a real strange mix of 1950s New York meets Blade Runner. Yeah, absolutely. One thing that served them well was that they went for a more stylized design of the characters. Something which looked more anime than realistic. Oh yeah, yeah, it definitely looks anime. Big hair, big eyes. Gravity defying hair. Mm-hmm. Perfect for catching on this anime boon that Pokemon was ushering in around the world. Ah, right. In a world where people were starting to warm up more to anime, and Dragon Ball and Sailor Moon were becoming household names, we had this video game that plugged into anime designs. Mm. Rather than use realistic proportions, they went for these weird character designs that emphasised more the head, the hands and the feet, which is where we kind of express ourselves the most. Yeah, in Sonic the Hedgehog, a lot of its character design is the big eyes, the bigger hands and bigger feet. Yes, they're the three things we use to express a lot of more emotions. So if you have better control of that stuff you can put a lot more emotions into the characters. There are two designers of note for creating this game's style. Yusuke Naora, who led the art direction, giving the game a real sense of it not being set in this pristine and perfect world. A lot of the images, especially in the slums, are these very dirty-looking areas where it's full of trash, broken-down machines. 
buildings are made from repurposed containers and things mm-hmm. and kind of looked in shanty towns, basically. Yeah, he wanted to give the world a real sense of grime and dirt mm. to give it a bit more of a kind of life. Yeah, it really highlights the wealth inequality within the game. And then, okay, time to talk about Tetsuya Nomura. Nomura is the character designer in this game. A former manga artist who would design these characters to truly stand out now that we're no longer in the realm of fantasy. Is this the Belts guy? This is the Belts guy, yes. <laughs> Why do you know him as the Belts guy? Um, because he really likes giving his characters belts and mm-hmm. buckles. Mm-hmm. And zippers. Even in places where belts don't usually go, like on sleeves or dresses made of belts and around the trouser leg diagonally that sort of thing it's very hot topic very emo and i think that might have actually been what influenced a lot of that sort of thing with emos yeah his characters have more belts than a championship boxer yeah i have such a complicated set of emotions about this man and his irritating approach not only character design but game design right but we'll have to save that for when we do the infamous Final Fantasy Disney crossover game, Kingdom Hearts. Yeah, there's a lot of belts in that game as well. What I'll say for now, though, being very charitable, he did a great job of bringing out every character's appeal with his design choices. The character design is very good in the game. I really like it. Final Fantasy VII had one of the biggest developments in gaming history. It cost around $240 million to make when adjusted for inflation. Oof. This places it fourth on the list of the most expensive video games ever made at the adjusted value. What were the other three? Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2, the 2009 version. Right. Grand Theft Auto 5 and Cyberpunk 2077. Yeah, that makes sense. That checks out. I have disqualified Star Citizen from this list. Because it's not a whole game yet. Yes, as it's racked up half a billion dollars to produce it, it still hasn't come out. <laughs> yeah, otherwise that would be at the top. It is a whole other rabbit hole. Yeah. Squaresoft went big with advertising this game around the world, trying to define it as a turning point in gaming history. Adverts showing off the cutscene animations are showing everywhere. Popular magazines had these full-page adverts for the game. Primetime sports advertising. A collaboration with Pepsi to get it on bottles. For me, I first saw it when it was a demo I got with a PlayStation magazine, which is where I also got the spoiler. Yeah, a spoiler of a certain event that we will get to. Yes, and with that advertising campaign... Square also, now that we're divorced from Nintendo, decided that we're going to keep the name as Final Fantasy VII and not fuck about with the numbers. Which is a good idea. In Europe, though, like we said in the first half, our very first Final Fantasy game was Final Fantasy VII. We had this game and went, okay, this is brilliant. Where are the other six? So when did we get the other six? After the success of this game, 4, 5, 6 would come out on the PlayStation as well. It won't be until the PSP that we get 1, 2, and 3 as well. That's still relatively recent compared to when they came out. I remember those being good years for me. Now, in those adverts, you would also hear the music by the series' long-time composer, Nobuo Uematsu. Oh, the soundtrack's incredible. Yeah, he's been making sublime music for the series since the NES days. I've got a whole bunch of the songs from the soundtrack in my seasonal playlist. The whole soundtrack is in my rotation of albums I write to. He's a man who belongs up alongside... Koji Kondo, Akira Yamaoka, and while we're at it, Street Fighter's Yoko Shimomura, as some of the best video game composers of all time. Mm. The man just puts stunning work into nearly everything he creates. Even the environmental music is catching and very compelling. 
I know I have a friend who will be shouting at his podcast player right now for me to mention the song Underneath the Rotting Pizza. Oh, yeah. Which is used in the game in multiple places. This echoey, bass-heavy tune that adds a real sense of exploration to the experience. It sounds quite slithy, like a detective theme. Yeah, it does. I think it's the little lick. The it's like that little upwards, like a little peeking in to see what's in this nook. Yeah, we're going around on a dangerous investigation, looking for answers but wary of danger. It is just a small example of the amazing stuff he puts into the music. Mm. I really love the theme that we get for ascending the airship. Yes, this is the main theme of the game, but done in a lot more of a triumphant tone. Yeah, just, it like adds to like the feeling of soaring in the air. And because that scene is one of my favourite moments in the whole game, it just made me feel so good. I still get like a little hit of dopamine every time it comes on. The high wind music is majestic. Majestic, that's a good word for it. You are getting access to the airship quite late in the game. It is a highlight in a chapter which is quite dark in the game's story. So this song just kicking in to get the right mood going. Better late than never. Yeah. Right, okay. Let's take a look through the story of this game and we'll have to stick to being quite high level or we'll never get this thing finished. And even then, this episode's still going to be really long because there is so much. We started this game on January 1st, right after we recorded the first half of the episode, which opens on this flower girl walking through an alleyway as the camera pans out and you just see this massive sprawling city that is the game's initial setting of Midgar this massive urban metropolis that as we open the game we then start in a train station to start the adventure I still get shivers down my spine when I see that intro yeah I hadn't seen many cutscenes like this before in gaming so it just felt like starting a big epic movie it's like watching the intro to Star Wars you really get the sense of epicness from it. Especially like you start, you know, you're playing as Cloud and he literally introduces himself by backflipping off of a train. Of course you're going to feel epic. <laughs> yes. We don't know his name yet, but we do start playing this character who instantly gets into a fight with the guards. Before you've learned anything in the mechanics, you're probably just thrown into this fight. It's only after that fight is finished that we learn his name. This is Cloud Strife, a hired mercenary and a former member of Soldier. Soldier are an elite tripper squad for the energy slash military company, a depressingly understandable overlap, called Shinra. As always, I'm going to now recite from the instruction manual. The main character of Final Fantasy VII, originally a member of Soldier, he is now a mercenary who will take any job. After being hired by Avalanche, he gradually gets caught up in a massive struggle for the life of the planet. He was the spiky-haired blonde guy we talked about at the start of the episode. When I say spiky, I mean defies gravity. I don't know how it's still standing up. He has got hair that's sharper than his massive sword. Yeah, he's got a huge big sword that is the size of him. I don't know how he manages to carry it, to be honest. He's just overcompensating. Perhaps. I intensely disliked him at first. He cared so little about the people he was working with and the cause that they're fighting for. He's a massive dick. Yeah. We are part of Avalanche, who are a group of eco-terrorists who we are on a mission working with right now. Cloud's not really, like, part of them. He's a mercenary soldier for hire. Yeah, he's helping them out because they're paying him. Yeah, and he does not give a shit about the environment, which is a bit of a turn-off for me, not gonna lie. <laughs> 
We are also joined by the leader of Avalanche, the big man named Barrett Wallace. The head of the underground resistance movement Avalanche, Barrett is fighting the mega conglomerate Shinra Incorporated, which has monopolized Mako Energy, building special reactors to suck it out of the planet. Barrett depends on brute strength and his gun arm to see him through. His wife died in an accident several years ago, and he now lives with his daughter Marlene. So how would you describe Barrett? Barrett is a jacked black guy with short hair and one of his arms replaced by a machine gun. He's the eco-warrior who formed Avalanche to take action against Shinra. Mm -hmm. He's the first person who told me that he can hear the planet crying. His really deep concerns about, you know, mankind and the environment really endeared me to him. I really liked him as a result. I respected him. And um, (laughs) Barrett is explaining in great detail why saving the planet is important. Cloud's just like, I don't care. I want my money and I want to leave. Literally, his first line of dialogue is, I don't care what your names are. Once this job's done, I'm out of here. Wow, great. Yeah, he says this to the other members of Avalanche. Cool guy Biggs, the chubby funny guy Wedge, and the tomboy tech nerd Jesse. Mm. All three being nice enough with Cloud, but Cloud is just having none of it. Yeah, he's very broody anime boy. A terrible person. He did not leave a great first impression. I was actually expecting him to be more likeable. They've perfectly gone for a character who has no morals at the start of the story. Yeah. Which will plug into his development as we go through the game. Yeah, he goes through a lot of character development, which makes me like him a bit more. Together, this ragtag bunch of eco-warriors are going to fight for the planet and kill the people of Shinra in an energy reactor to fight against pollution. Bit unfair to say that. They're wanting to destroy the Mako reactor first. Those guards at Shinra are stopping them their casualties in the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, this is the late 90s where terrorists could still be heroes. Yes. But there is no denying that we are here to kill people. Considering what Shinra are like, I'm inclined to defend Avalanche, and we will get to that. But we are living in a world right now that people are staging protests by shooting up energy pylons. Yeah, there was this one in France. There are a bunch of eco-warriors who vandalised and destroyed a concrete plant which is a massive producer of co2 in france that was a huge deal but it was more about destroying property than it was about like killing people i you know retrospectively saw what avalanche was doing in the same light except for the fact with the macro reactor there were guards in the way with avalanche they're clearly fine with killing people it's why they've hired cloud yeah that is a whole other discussion are these terrorists or freedom fighters depends on how you look at it At the time, I felt very uncomfortable with that, actually. There was so much I didn't know. I only had Barrett's word to go on. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, wait, am I the bad one here? But um, I can justify it in my head now. That's that's what humans do. So we are here to bomb the Mako reactor. How would you describe Mako energy? Uh, Mako is what fuels Migdor and everywhere on the planet. It's explained to us right now as being this energy source kind of like oil but green and magical yeah i'm kind of guessing that mako is a play on words of magic oil oh that would be interesting yeah so we get through this entire section with cloud and barrett as our only party members and we blow up the reactor yeah with the terrorist mission a complete success 
a phrase we get to say with glee in the years before 9 11 yeah the gang split and head back to the slums by train this is where we get a tutorial of how midgar is structured it's basically like there's the upper city which is like the richer more affluent part and then underneath that plate is the under city in the slums it's a very visual metaphor for the disparity between the rich and poor in midgar mm-hmm. it's also split into sections like a pizza and the sections are called sectors so the whole of midgar each district has got a number as opposed to a name i find that quite interesting yeah yeah Someone says it in the game that years ago they had names, but no one remembers them anymore and just used the numbers. Yeah, that's really sad, actually. I think the roads in New York are like that as well. Originally they had names, but they eventually found that numbering them was a lot more useful. Yeah, numbering streets, though, is different from, like, numbering districts. The Hunger Games did that. There is merit to it, but I think it just goes to this way of showing how there's no life to the city. It's a very mechanical city. It makes it a lot more, like, the culture seem more homogenised than what it actually is. And in the centre of the city is the massive building for the Shinra company that effectively run the city. Yeah, we see the mayor, like, very briefly in the first part of the game and then never see him again. Yeah, he's essentially a tool of the Shinra Corporation. One of the only things he says to you is that... (laughs) I'm just sitting here at my desk. I don't do anything. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Quite fitting for Final Fantasy VII, and this is absolutely intentional. Our team's hideout is found in the seventh sector. Ah, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So that's where we go back to and find the bar Seventh Heaven, which is ran by who will become our third party member, Tifa Lockhart. Bright and optimistic, Tifa always cheers up the others when they're down. But don't let her looks fool you. She can decimate almost any enemy with her fists. Yeah, I've seen that video. Oh, Sandro! She is one of the main members of Avalanche. She and Cloud were childhood friends. And although she has strong feelings for him, she would never admit it. When you meet her at first, it's kind of a bit obvious. Like, she doesn't outright say it, but you can tell. You can really, really tell. How would you describe Tifa for the listeners? She has long dark hair and is kind of dressed like Lara Croft with like her white vest top and booty shorts. Mm -hmm. But she's also got like elbow pads and knuckle dusters. Yeah, because she fights with her fists. Yeah. At first I found her like a bit simpering and needy. Like before she joined our party because she was like, Oh, Cloud, you made your promise to me. Me, me, me. And then when she joined our party and turned out to be a really good fighter, it was like, all right, okay, yeah. Yeah, she makes sense. I like her. I feel like you're missing her biggest asset, though. Hmm. I really don't know. Oh, is it her boobs? No, it's because she has really long hair that goes down to her ass. I said biggest asset, Jen. Why would I still be talking about chest? (laughs) (laughs) I'm kidding. No, she does have fucking crazy huge tits. Yeah, yeah, like Lara Croft. (laughs) In the bar that you meet Barrett's daughter Marlene, that we introduce in his intro. Who, upon first sight of Cloud, screams and runs away. Which, I mean, same. Yeah, understandable. Yeah. I originally thought that she was Tifa's daughter and her and Barrett were together. I didn't really know, like, properly who she was and she was looking after Marlene. Mm -hmm. Cloud and Tifa grew up together in a little town called Nibelheim. You find out now that Seven years ago, again, the number seven, very prominent in this game. Really? 
Cloud met Tifa one starry night to tell her that he was leaving town to go join Soldier. And Tifa makes him promise that if he becomes famous and Tifa's in a bind, he'll come and save her. When Tifa first mentioned the promise, I thought, yeah, Cloud made a promise to Tifa that if they're both single by the time they're 40, they've got to marry each other. <laughs> they're only in their early 20s. That's quite far off at this point of the game. I know, I know. But like, I thought that that was the promise they made. No, no, it's that you'll be my knight in shining armour. Barrett pays us for the job of bombing the first reactor and then offers us a job of bombing a second. Tifa joins us for this mission. And after completing the second mission of bombing the Sector 5 reactor, as we're about to leave, we are stopped by President Shinra, the president of Shinra. <laughs> I mean, people name their corporations after themselves. So. I know, I know, but it's just Shinra's president, President Shinra. Shinra, Shinra, Shinra. Yeah, he's this kind of chubby, fat, blonde man. Pretty much just a ridiculous Skeletor, except much more competent and therefore eviler. We get a boss battle with one of his machines, which blows up and sends Cloud flying off the plate and down into the slums below, falling a pretty dizzying distance which should be his death, if not for the fact that he crashed through the roof of a church into the life of Aerith Gainsborough. Yes, Aerith. Not Ares. No, this was that name I said was mistranslated, so we fixed it and made it Aerith, which is how it's done in all other media since. Young, beautiful, and somewhat mysterious. Aerith met Cloud while selling flowers on the streets of Medgar, that's a scene that happened earlier, but it was just really small and we glossed over it. She designed to join him soon after. Her unusual abilities enable her to use magic, but she seems more interested in the deepening love triangle between herself, Cloud, and Tifa. Because of course there's a love triangle. We already said that Cloud is a despondent dickhead who seems to not care about anything. Of course women want him. <laughs> All women just want bastards. <laughs> Why can't they date a nice guy like me? <laughs> She's got brown hair, she's got the long braid. She's actually who I thought was the princess in the first half. Mm -hmm. Except instead of Tiara, she is gravity-defying bangs. As should be in this world of anime. Yes. She's also got a long pink dress, mm -hmm. big boots, and a little red denim jacket. Mm -hmm. It's an iconic look. Our introduction to the flower girl is cut short when a man named Reno appears. He's part of the Turks. Shimmer's equivalent of the CIA, the kind of black ops agents. He's here to do something with Aerith, but with a mercenary nearby, Aerith hires Cloud to be her bodyguard to help her escape the church and get back home. And in exchange, she offers us a date, which Cloud stammers into not entirely declined. So Cloud literally falls out of the sky. <laughs> right into like a flower bed in the church. Five minutes after Cloud fell from the sky, she's instantly want to have a date with him how would you feel if you're in the middle of work and a very sexy blonde man just fell from the sky right onto your desk not injured and just gets up and says hi i'm not saying i blame her because she doesn't know he's a dick i mean i'm sure you'd do the same oh totally <laughs> it's raining men <laughs> hallelujah it's raining one man <laughs> amen I mean, we say that Cloud helps her escape, right? There's a lot of the time where the roof kind of falls apart and he can't get to her. And instead of like running down to, to get her, he's just like, oh no, you're going to have to climb up yourself while he's just sitting there like a big tumshi. It's basically a stealth way for her to level up and catch up with everyone else. You can move barrels that are on the ceiling to knock over the guards and help her escape. What? I didn't know I could do that. 
I was in the wrong with that. Yes, that's you being a horrible bodyguard. I wasn't being a horrible bodyguard. I didn't think he could do anything because I was moving Aerith. I didn't think I could move two people at once. It's very easy to underestimate her because she like exudes this cute innocence. She really gives me like Snow White vibes. Mm-hmm. It's like disarming because her magic is really strong from the get-go. Yeah, and I do want to say like she's quite often depicted being demure and sweet. Mm. But she's actually cheeky and quite energetic. Which I like that she's got those sides to her because it's so easy to paint female love interests as just like, oh wow, you're so handsome and, you know, just demure like Wendy from Peter Pan. But she's got layers to her and I really like that. The Mm. characters do. They've got different sides to them, which really makes the game for me. We take Aerith home and then we're going on to get back to Sector 7. Aerith tags along to help us anyway. I mean, she is waiting for that date with Cloud. And it's on this journey that we catch Tifa in a sexy violet dress, riding in the back of a chokeable drawn carriage. We'll explain them later. We follow the carriage and end up in the wall market in Sector 6. Tifa has been taken to the mansion of a local slumlord called Don Canero. He interviews three women a night for his potential bride, who he seems mm. to be want to skip straight to the wedding night. Ugh, gads. Don Canero is like Andrew Tate's super ego. <laughs> Except fat. And a slum landlord. He's also been depicted in the remake of looking very gross. Even from like the polygonal character design, you can tell he's supposed to be like kind of gross looking. Aerith mm-hmm. offers to be the second woman for the night after Tifa, but for the third woman, our new friend here comes up with a very interesting solution. One of my favourite scenes in the game. Yeah, you alluded to this in our intro. I didn't allude to it, I said that it might be a thing. Yes. She comes up with the idea of having Cloud cross-dress to be the third woman. So we go around uh, Sector 6, seeing what's all there, what can we do? And we are looking for a dress, a wig, and a tiara. The tiara and the makeup are optional. Right. I mean, we won't go into huge amounts of detail. You know, if people are playing it, you know, figure it out for yourselves. Yeah. But the people in Sector 6 are so accepting. Aerith asking the vendors and people of the town for him and everyone's like, oh yeah, yeah, we can do that. Yeah, yeah. I really like that. Considering how Sector 7 felt quite distant. You know, I'd went about the town, you know, buying things and people were quite reclusive. But in Sector 6, they were just really nice people despite being like ruled over by this horrible, horrible man. That being said, they did make you get the wig by competing in a squat contest. But that's all in good fun. You know, they were <laughs> going to do those squats anyway. Once we have completed our outfit, and with Aerith picking out a nice dress for herself at the same dressmaker that made our dress, yeah, we return to the mansion and finally get chatting to Tifa, who tells us that Don Canero knows of some plot that Shinra are doing to try and get revenge on Avalanche. It is while they're having this conversation that Don Canero calls the three women into his office and then picks one for the night. In this instance, he chose Tifa, but if you pick the right dress, wig, tiara, and makeup, there is a selection of options which will get Don Canero to pick Cloud. Depending on the options, usually he picks Tifa, but sometimes he can pick Aerith and sometimes he can pick Cloud. See, it's not really an interview because, like, he doesn't do any interviewing. So, like, you calling it that kind of, like, mildly irked me. (laughs) Kind of more of an inspection. (laughs) No matter who he picks, it all ends the same. We beat the shit out of all his guards. Get into a room where we threaten Don Canero to give us the information, in which he tells us that they're planning to destroy Sector 7 slums by blowing up the support beam 
that holds up the plate. Yeah. And now we are on a mission to save the slums. Not helped when Don Canero... He pulls the trap door and throws us into the Sarlacc pit. Yeah, clearly how he gets rid of his women after a night out. Oh my god! Fucking proper Barney Stinson things there. The whole begone sleep system by Stinson, patent pending. Oh my god, no, that just hit me. <laughs> ah! We arrive at the base of the support beam that holds up the plate that we now know that the Turks are going to bomb. Tifa asks Aerith to go and take Marlene somewhere safe, just in case. But we still fight up to the top to try and fight off the Turks. As we climb the tower, we find the bodies of Wedge, Biggs and Jesse, who have all been injured very gravely and are incapable of escaping. There's a lot of pressure for us not to fail this. Like, we just have to keep running up the tower. There's nothing we can do to help them. We get to the top and find Barrett, and we then have a boss fight with the Turks. What we don't realise is that during this boss fight was just a distraction for them to finish setting the bomb. And with that, sealing the fate of the Sector 7 slums. We try to stop the Turks, but they escape by helicopter, where we then see the leader of the Turks, Seng, has captured Aerith. Aerith shouting out to Tifa that she took Marlene somewhere safe. With the Turks now leaving by helicopter, and with the gang now stuck at the top of this support beam, Barrett finds a hook on a cable that he thinks they can use to escape the slums before the bomb goes off. They ride this hook down and you actually watch the cinematic where the plate collapses behind them. The upper affluent city now landing down and crushing everyone in the slums. I was really shocked and devastated. We had built a rapport with these guys Mm -hmm. and they just flattened them all without even blinking. That's the Shimmer Corporation. They're this corrupt that they will kill an entire village just to stomp out a few terrorists. Yeah. Whatever we were doing with those Mako reactors is just vastly overshadowed. It's intended as a very harrowing scene. It's really callous. Especially to Barrett, who doesn't realise until after he's explained to him that Marlene was safe. He thinks he's just lost his daughter. Yeah. Barrett is devastated. Matifa explains what Aerith shouted, that he took her somewhere safe. Cloud can instantly guess this is Aerith's house in Sector 5, where we go and find Marlene, thankfully alive and safe with Aerith's mum. It's at the point we realise that this is actually Aerith's adoptive mother. And the reason why the Turks have such an interest in Aerith is because she's the last of a civilization called the Ancients. A group of people with magical powers and that Shinra believe that the Ancients can lead civilization to the Promised Land where there is assumed to be an abundance of Mako energy. As thanks for saving Marlene, Barrett leads the group to go and rescue Aerith from the Shinra Corporation. That mission was very interesting. When infiltrating the Shinra Corporation building, you can either go in guns blazing and fight your way through, or you can take the fire escape and go up all the stairs. Personally, I always recommend you go the guns blazing, get some levels in. I decided against that, I think, because I didn't want to be violent. I guess in hindsight, it's me knowing that, well, that's not what Avalanche is about. So we spend unfathomable amount of time climbing these stairs the building has 60 floors yes and we have to climb this fire escape to go up all 60 i mean i thought that you know the stairs to my university library was bad this is on another level another level i'm so proud of myself i shouldn't be we get to the 60th floor we're in storm the high officers of shinra we bumble around until we get to the science floor on the 69th floor nice 
where Aerith is being studied by the mad scientist Hojo. Not Horo or Hozo. Or Hodo. <laughs> yeah. So how would you describe Hojo? Oh god. He's got like glasses that kind of shield his... Like you can't really see his eyes for the glasses. It's a common trope in anime to have bad guys be animated with glasses where you can't see their eyes. You can't judge their intentions. Mm-hmm. And Hojo is one of those. He's got like this ponytail he's probably not washed his hair in 500 years yeah i just can't get the image out of my head that he's very greasy yeah and i mean it doesn't help that we first see him he's put Aerith in a cage with a lion and he's basically says oh yeah you know they're both the last of their kind implying that's like he wants to do like these untoward experiments and crossbreeding and ugh not a man you'd want to bring home to mother horrid man he's probably on par with don canero as being gross and disgusting you know they're in very high contention we break the test tube at which point the lion bursts free to attack hojo yeah he also then introduces himself he's just talking lion yes hell yeah he becomes our fifth party member he says that Hojo called him Red 13 and gave him a tattoo of the number 13 on his shoulder, but invites you to call him whatever you wish. Now, I decided to change his name from Red 13 to just Red, as I do think it just seems a bit cumbersome reading people go, hey, Red 13, wait up. It seems like the more sensible thing you call him is Red. Yeah, you would just call him Red, yeah. Just as his name implies, he is an animal with fire red fur, but under his fierce exterior is an intelligence surpassing that of any human. His sharp claws and fangs make him good at close-range fighting, but other than that, not much is known about him. It's not even certain that Red 13 is his real name, a real enigma. My notes say kinda cool, kinda furry bait, by which I mean the community of nerds called furries, who really like cute cartoon animals would really like him. But just to be clear, he's not like... A Disney character who walks around on two legs. Yeah, he's like, actually walks on four legs. Yeah. I liked him quite a fair bit because of that intelligence. He says that he's only going to sick alongside us until he gets to his hometown, by which time he's wanting to leave and stay at home. Yeah, basically he's asked for you to help him get home. Yeah. Now that we've saved Aerith and seemingly Red as well, we try to escape Shinra building, but are captured and put in prison cells. We manage to escape them, but as we get out of our cells, we notice that there's a trail of blood running through the floors. So we've got to follow the trail of blood. This trail leads us to the president of Shinra, President Shinra's office. We all never get bored of calling him that. <laughs> Especially because this is the last time we're seeing him, since we've now found his dead body, impaled by a comically massive sword. Is it bigger or smaller than clouds? Oh, it's much bigger than clouds. It makes clouds look inadequate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not as thick as clouds but definitely longer. They do say it's not of its size, it's how you use it. Everyone else is surprised to see the sword, apart from Cloud who recognises the sword, and he knows what it means, that Sephiroth is alive. This story is very long and complicated. It's at this time that President Shinra's son, Vice President Rufus Shinra, appears on a helicopter now to run the company. And that Rufus has been waiting for this moment all of his life. 
he was kind of secretly hoping someone would off his dad so he could take over the post. Yes. He gives me those vibes. I don't think he says it outright, but I know. I definitely know that. We can tell that shit's about to go down, so we all decide that probably now's a good time to make that escape we failed to do earlier, but we do it in style. Cloud gets a motorbike, Mm -hmm. and the rest of them get a truck. Yes. And they drive out of the window, and out of a pretty high window, and then they land in a motorway, and there's a bike chase. Yes. This starts the first major minigame in the bike chase game. Yes. You're supposed to flank the truck and protect it from the Shinra soldiers on motorbikes. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to sidle up to the Shinra motorbikes and, like, slash it with your sword. Yes, you can slash left or you can slash right using the square and circle buttons. I didn't do very well at that minigame. It's a very hard minigame. Yeah. If you don't take out the guards, they damage the truck. Mm-hmm. and every member of the truck has a health bar depending on everyone's health bar by the end of the mini game, will depend on how much health they have going into the boss fight that happens right at the end yeah so you should have a materia called cure and a materia called all for the love of god have that equipped yes because unless you're good at this mini game the first thing you'll do right at the end is heal your party when the fight begins and let's face it most people coming into it fresh like me would not do very well at that minigame. No, I didn't do well at it my first time either. Yeah. Once we beat this boss, though, we have now successfully escaped the city of Midgar. Thank God. I cannot emphasise enough how glad I was to be out of Midgar. The horizon ahead of me, just infinite possibilities, and no longer in that shithole. As you leave Midgar, the sky literally turns clear. Yes. We make our way to the town of Cam, where we hear the entire backstory between Cloud, Sephiroth, Genova, and Cloud and Tifa's hometown of Nibelheim. Sephiroth is considered the greatest member of Soldier to ever live. A world legend. Now, he is the only character who's not part of the main party to get a description in the instruction manual as well. Even among the elite troops of Soldier, Sephiroth is known to be the best. His past is locked away in a confidential file held by Shinra Inc. His giant sword, which only he can handle, has extremely destructive power. Said to have disappeared in battle years ago, his current whereabouts are unknown. Except the Cloud. He knows the story. And he's here to tell all. Five years ago, they were dispatched to Cloud's hometown of Nibelheim to sort out a problem in one of the reactors. They rendezvous with Tifa, who serves as their guide for this mission leading them to the reactor where they find an experimental room in the back, containing the body of Genova. Sephiroth knew the name Genova, it was his mother's name, but he never knew his parents growing up. It is here he realises that Genova is an ancient alien life form. When we first encounter Sephiroth, he and Cloud are talking in the truck and we get to know him as a person. He's very lonely and reclusive and Mm -hmm. shut off. Very stuck in his own head. Mm -hmm. Cloud is... A young soldier who's really a big fan and wants to keep talking to him. And, you know, there's these moments where we think that, well, if Cloud has a bit longer to talk with him and bring him out of his shell, then, well, they could be really good friends and help each other out. Yeah, Cloud is just bursting with energy in this flashback. At the time, Sephiroth kind of a bit irritated, but can't help but admire it, mm-hmm. in a sense. 
and we get a scene of gameplay where Sephiroth and Cloud are fighting alongside each other. Cloud is at level 1 and Sephiroth is level 50. And this enemy that they're facing is also really high level, around Sephiroth's level. Sephiroth keeps fighting the enemy and it keeps killing Cloud. But Sephiroth keeps bringing Cloud back to life. Despite the fact that, like, you know, it's a bit futile. He could have just left him, but he didn't. Yeah, it's really here that they use the game's mechanics to emphasise the difference between the two. But also the, the goodness that Sephiroth had. Yeah, because Cloud will hit the monster for 140 damage. Which is not much. Sephiroth hits it for 5,600 damage. That is in cold numbers, the power difference between the new recruit Cloud and the powerful Sephiroth. Yeah. And I really liked that there was a rapport. In the town of Nilvelheim, there is the Shinra Mansion with a hidden library in the basement. Sephiroth goes down to this basement and into the hidden library where he reads every book he can to learn all the secrets of Genova, the Ancients, and the Promised Land. Sephiroth comes to the rational, sane, and very level-headed decision to kill everyone in town, including Tifa and Cloud's parents, burn it to the fucking ground, and go back to the reactor. He's been driven mad. Because he finds out what humans did to the ancients and eradicated them, knowing what his heritage was and that being robbed from him, that's what changes him. That sense of betrayal and that anger comes out in the scene where Sephiroth is burning the town to the ground and he's walking through the flames back to the reactor as if it's nothing. Yeah, it's a very famous scene in this game of Sephiroth standing before the fire before turning around and walking into the flames and slowly disappearing. And that really shook me. We knew this person. How could he have been capable of that? How could anyone have been capable of that? Like, we've seen some atrocity in this part of the game, so I shouldn't be that shocked, but it really hit me. Cloud goes to the reactor to find that Tifa was there before him. She goes to fight with Sephiroth, and Sephiroth attacks her and leaves her almost for dead. It was due to this injury that Tifa said she doesn't really remember what happened in Nibelheim and that has to take Cloud's word of what happened. Cloud then goes to confront Sephiroth, but he doesn't remember what happened either. All he knows is, is that he's sure that Sephiroth died in the reactor, but finding that sword through President Shinra's body lets him know that he is definitely back and Cloud takes it as his responsibility to stop Sephiroth from getting to the Promised Land. He doesn't know what his plan is, but just knows that it cannot be good for humanity. There is a sense of morality to Cloud after all that he finds it's not just for money that he wants to stay in this party now. There's an intrinsic reason for him to stay in this story. After such heavy storytelling with deep lore implications, it's time to start arsing around with a bunch of big yellow birds. This is where we get a guide to the chocobo catching mechanics. So first off, what are chocobos? They're like cute yellow ostriches. They're basically like horses in Final Fantasy VII. Yeah. They're across all the Final Fantasy games, are they not? They weren't in some of the earlier ones, but they're now a mainstay of the franchise. Because they're very cute. Rather than give us a chocobo, they teach us how to catch one for ourselves. Yeah. You lure it using a certain materia, and then you get in a fight with a chocobo and some monsters. And to keep the chocobo from running away, you give it some of that green stuff. Yes, you use greens to keep the chocobo around. <laughs> I'm sure we've all met someone like that. They stick by you as long as the green's there. <laughs> yep, we've all went to uni. <laughs> we catch a chocobo, 
We ride it through the mountains where we learn the Turks are also chasing after Sephiroth. Now with Reno joined by the bald-headed Rude and the blonde-haired Elena. Before we go any further with the game though, this is one of the points where we did have to take a little side quest. In the world map, there are these forests where you find higher level enemies to fight. But if you keep getting to fights in the forest, you'll eventually encounter a very strange ninja girl. Yeah. That if you beat her, you can get her to join your party. This is how you find our first bonus character and the sixth member to our party, Yuffie Kisaragi. Although you'd never know it if you looked at her, Yuffie comes from a long line of ninja. She forced herself into the group just to get a certain something. She's sneaky, arrogant, and way selfish. But with her super shuriken and her special skills, there isn't anyone else you'd rather have on your side in a fight. She's spritey and dark-haired. Another one who's kind of disarmingly cute. You can't help but find her kind of adorable. But I mean, not gonna lie, the fact that I had to work so hard to get her to not steal my money and run away is a bit of a red flag. (laughs) It should have been a bit of a red flag, but you know guess not yes she doesn't really have much impact in the story because she's a bonus character the game's kind of designed to go on without her being part of the party but she will have one mission that we'll talk about later yeah we go through the shinra base of junin harbor and we all dress as shinra soldiers to sneak through and end up on a boat to the other continent to chase after sephiroth hang on sephiroth is like on the ship yes turns out sephiroth is on the ship where we get our first boss fight with him and his mod Genova. yeah he was also a stowaway just imagining him also being dressed up as a Shinra soldier. We get to the new continent, landing in the Costa del Sol, which always messes with me that there's a place in Spain with that actual name. We do run into Hojo on the beach, who's on holiday. Quite frankly, I was delighted to see him again. Well, to be fair, he probably needs some sun for his bloody complexion. I mean, I'm surprised he didn't, like, sizzle like a lobster. But I mean, <laughs> Hojo, I'm going to catch some rays. Also, Hojo never takes off his lab coat. <laughs> Anyway, we leave the beach resort and we head through the mountain village of North Corel, which we find out is Barrett's hometown, and where Barrett is not very well liked. Yeah, I was kind of surprised by that, actually, but that's because I liked Barrett. It is a derelict mining town. Mm-hmm. But it was destroyed years ago when Shinra attacked it. What's weird about this town, though, is that even though it is an absolute ruin, basically just a town of tents, it does serve as the gateway to... The Shinra amusement park known as the Gold Saucer. See, this is another example of how wealth disparity is illustrated by an upper city and a lower city, and also plates. It's like a physical barrier between the two things, except in this case, the Gold Saucer's right up the sky, far, far away from the shantytown North Corel. Mm-hmm. The Gold Saucer is just Disneyland. Mm-hmm but more exploitative, possibly? I don't think there's anything to be more exploitative than Disneyland. I was kind of in awe, because a lot of the places that we've went to, it's been, like, poor parts of the city, Mm -hmm. and tiny villages, and a derelict mining town, literally right outside of it. So this is the first bit of affluence that we see. Mm -hmm. It's so brightly coloured with happy music and i was just struck with this oh wow just how pretty it was and the roller coasters and everything like i'm a child so i mean of course i'm gonna get taken by that Mm -hmm. it's so easy to get lured in by it but in order to do anything in the gold plate you have to do loads of mini games you're not even guaranteed to win them Mm -hmm. and you earn disney bucks 
effectively. Mm -hmm. That's all you can do. You can't spend like actual money. No. You can spend money to play the games that you can win the Disney bucks, and then you can use the Disney bucks to do things around the park. Yeah. Incidentally, this is where mini games like the motorbike game go to get a bit more life out of them. Yeah, a lot of the mini games that we've played or are still to play, they get a spot in the gold saucer. Yeah. So a lot of your side questing is in the gold saucer, mm -hmm. and it's a bright, happy distraction. Mm -hmm. Especially nowadays, like we have to distract ourselves to get through and find escapism where we can. So it's understandable that other players would be drawn to spending more time there, completing all the different side quests and getting those little achievements that are do a lot of grinding but are worth it in the end. And I'm not throwing stones because we all do it. We all like love our nostalgia and places like Disney, which is very like the gold play, have been taking advantage of that for decades. It's while we're exploring the gold saucer that we've run into our seventh party member, a little black cat named Cat She, which I am going with the true Gallic pronunciation rather than Kate Sith. Yeah, like it's spelt Kate Sith. C A I T S I T H. Yes, but this is actually a creature of Scottish legend called the Cat She. Cat She rides around in the back of a huge stuffed mog he magically brought to life. Megaphone in hand, he's always shouting orders and creating dopey attacks. When his slot machine attack works, the enemy lines look like an overturned toy box. His hobby is fortune telling, but like his personality, it's pretty unreliable. The Mog is like this marshmallow man mm -hmm. type creature with the big hands and the cute goggly eyes. Yes, Mogs are part of the Moogles who again are reoccurring characters in the Final Fantasy franchise. Yeah, it's kind of cute, although it was hard for me to kind of figure out, like, there are two separate beings, you know, where does one end and the other begin? Is the Mog the she in Catchy? I don't know. But apparently it's the, the cat is the brains of the operation. Mm -hmm. I'm chilling in the gold saucer, and he just comes out of nowhere saying like, hey, I'm reading your fortune. I don't remember what it was that was said, but... After pulling two crappy fortunes, he pulls a third, which reads, What you pursue will be yours, but you will lose something dear. He basically finds that, oh, this isn't what I usually find in my fortune telling. I'm sticking around to see what happens with this. And so he joins your party. Once we've done here, we go to one of the other squares in the gold saucer, the battle square. We find everyone has been murdered. Ah, one of those murder mystery theme parks. Or, no, they've all been shot by a man with a gun on his arm. Oh my god, my heart stopped. Yeah, because Barrett ran off once we got to the gold saucer, really pissed off about everything that happened in North Corral. So when we hear that someone with a gun arm has been killing people, we think the worst. I just, I thought, oh no, it can't be. It can't be Barrett. But, like, no one else has got, like, a gun in his arm. Like, who else could it be? We get arrested for being the first people to find the crime. And we get thrown in the underground Disney jails. I mean, they have those in Disneyland. Which is basically a penal colony in the middle of this desert that the gold saucer was built on. We find Barrett, who explains it wasn't him who shot those people, but it might have been his old friend Dine, who is Marlene's real dad. We fight Dine, we kill him, and then we are given a chance to get out of this penal colony through chocobo racing, which is our next minigame to explain. 
Chocobo racing is a huge deal in this gold plate. Gold saucer, get it right. It's a huge deal in the gold saucer. It's just like horse racing, but with the big birds. If you want your freedom, you've got to win the race. Yes, so how it works is that you can't actually control the chocobo and where it goes direction-wise, but what you can do is make it speed up, slow down, or sprint. You have a stamina bar, and if the stamina bar depletes, then the chocobo will essentially just move at its slowest speed. So you have to kind of manage the stamina bar to get to the end of the race. Yeah, I enjoyed that game actually. Mm -hmm. It was a lot of fun. I was also quite glad I wasn't given control over the directions because considering how badly I did it controlling the motorbike earlier on in the game, yeah, I'm very glad that it was just the speeding up and slowing down I was responsible for. Thankfully, when we win the race, we get out of the gold plate. You've got me doing it now. (laughs) We get out of the gold saucer, where the leader of the gold saucer decides, in his mistake of sending us to this penal colony, to gift us a vehicle that can now cross deserts and shallow rivers, which will allow us to get to our next areas of the game. And goddamn, I need to stop this. It's way too long. Yeah, there is a lot of story to this game. It feels like a proper fantasy epic where... I mean, I was talking about Super Mario being this fancy epic, but this is proper Lord of the Rings type stuff. It's very complex, but if you're rolling with the story, it's a good bit easier to follow. So I think now to change from day one's recording to day two recording, I'm going to splice in the sound from whenever you sleep at an inn. Yeah, that's a good idea. Right, let's get back at this. Onward we go through the continent, and our car breaks down just outside a mountain village. We head into the mountain village to try and get the car repaired, and find this is Cosmo Canyon, which just happens to be Red's hometown. Though I shouldn't call him Red, for it's here that we learn his actual name is Nanaki. Yeah, it was interesting finding out more about Red, because he's very mysterious up until now. Yeah, and we're going to learn a lot about him, because we're introduced to his adoptive grandfather, Bugenhagen a strange mix between spiritualist and astronomist. He gives us an extremely powerful cutscene, which explains how Mako energy is actually a spirit energy known as the life stream. And by extracting it for power, they are actively killing the planet. Not just in an ambipamba way that we're doing it in our world, where we just say we're killing the planet, but we're only just killing life on the planet. Yeah. No, no, this is straight up draining the life out of the planet until it cracks open like a dust ball. Bugenhagen has this VR planetarium type thing Mm -hmm. in his attic and he shows Cloud and whoever's in his party a big diagram of the solar system and the planets when he's explaining about Mako energy being... It's like the circle of life thing where Mako is like, you know, it's life energy. It comes from the planet and then when something dies, it goes back into the planet. You know, that sort of thing. Because Mako's being mined and there's nothing being put back into it, it's draining the planet. It's shown in his little simulator thing as the planet shriveling and breaking apart and falling down in space. That's not how planets work. But in its defence, they've not been to space yet. They don't really know what it looks like either. And it gets across the point really well. This just gives us another reason why we have to stop Shinra from Shinraing and to stop Sephiroth. Yeah, one of the things that really stuck out to me was when he said the words, it was something like, when it's time for the planet to end, you'll understand that you know absolutely nothing. It may be tomorrow or a hundred years from now, but it's not long off. That cuts so deep. 
it's how I feel like a lot, a lot of the time this sums up my sentiments mm-hmm. on what life is like right now. And I think there's quite a lot of us who feel the same way. We also get Red short and very unimportant backstory. Last of his kind, thought his dad was a deadbeat, but turns out his dad isn't. All very powerful, all very meaningless to the overall plot, so we're just going to move on. It was a really nice moment. It's a counterpoint to things that come up later on. Mm-hmm. Next, we end up in the ruins of Nibelheim, Cloud and Tifa's hometown, and the town burned down in that backstory from earlier, except the town is exactly as it looked in the flashback. When I entered the town, I thought, this looks really eerily familiar. And then, as Tifa or someone else like accuses Cloud of lying, that, oh, the town's still here, it's not been burned down. This whole scene really fucked with my brain. I thought I knew Cloud, not a great person, endearing himself to me bit by bit you know the more that he's in my party and proving himself in combat but this scene makes me think do i know him do i know him at all and this is the character that you're playing as this is a recurring theme throughout the game how reliable a narrator is cloud Mm -hmm. we'll come back to this definitely throughout the game this game is a roller coaster (laughs) holy fuck as you go through town, you start to realise that nobody in town remembers the fire, or Cloud, or Tifa, and they all claim that they've been here for years and years. Yeah. I think the logical conclusion you have to come to is that the Shinra company rebuilt the town brick by brick, just so they could hide the disaster of Sethoroth's betrayal. Cloud trying to argue that, no, this has been my hometown. I don't remember you. You've not been here for years. I've, I'm from here. Mm-hmm. And having people tell you that you've never existed and whatever. This scene, especially with the cloaked figures cutting about, is greedy horror. It's absolutely nightmarish. Imagine that. That's something we haven't really explained yet. That we keep running into people who are in cloaks with numbered tattoos. Mm -hmm. That will come up more relevant later in the story. Yeah, put a pin on those cloaks. Mm -hmm. We definitely see a few in this town. This is where we pick up our 8th party member and our second hidden character of the game. In the basement of the Shinra mansion, next to where Sephiroth had his emo awakening. Emo awakening? Wow, way to understate the whole thing. We find a man sleeping in a coffin. His name is Vincent Valentine. A mystical man, stern and upright while at the same time dark and mysterious. His past connection with Shinra Inc. is what made him join Cloud and the others. He may seem frail at a first glance, but inside his body lurks a fearsome power. He is a very easy character to miss. Mm -hmm. When I was going through the story, I just needed to know what happened next. I would just run straight to the chaos. If you hadn't appointed to that room next to the library, I probably wouldn't have went in. It's really funny. Like, he's sleeping in a coffin, and I'm just thinking, why is there a coffin in here? So I go and see it. And then this vampire man emerges. Like, does he not like do like the rising up thing, mm-hmm. like a proper vampire? And he says, "Oh, I'm sleeping off my sins, and oh, woe is me, all my regrets." And I'm like rolling my eyes, like, "Oh my god, get over yourself!" But it's so emo and extra. I can't help but admire it. He's dressed in black with a red cape and headband. And he's got these pointy armoured shoes and a gun. He's such a goth vampire. It's so cute. Yes, Vincent van Gogh, if you will. Hey. But I mean, he's he's got both his ears, though. I'm sorry, that was off colour. 
Not that you would see them, because he's got so much like long black hair. Yeah. He could have no ears for all we know. Mm-hmm. We learn that he's a former Turk, and that he has a grudge against Sephiroth and Hojo, that he's willing to join our party to resolve. We pass through the mountains and onto our next town, Rocket Town, named for the giant space rocket that's been sitting here rusting at the back of town. It's on this rusted rocket that we meet our final party member, and incidentally my favourite party member, Sid Highwind. Sid is a tough-talking, warm-hearted old pilot who hasn't forgotten his dreams. There's no better pilot by air or sea. He believes someday that he'll fly to the ends of the universe. With his handmade spear and knowledge of machinery, he throws himself into any attack regardless of danger. Now this is another Final Fantasy tradition. In every Final Fantasy game there is always a Sid, usually in a position of mechanical knowledge. If there's a mechanic to be found in a Final Fantasy game, it's usually named Sid. <laughs> a Sid in every Final Fantasy. Mm-hmm. So how does he look, just for the sake of our listeners? He is a rugged, blonde, white man with aviator goggles and a navy blue shirt. Mm-hmm. I didn't like him when I first met him. Why not? Because I first met him when I was in his assistant's house and he takes out his frustration on his assistant quite a bit which is really off-putting. Yes, his female assistant, who when you first meet him, he's been quite verbally abusive. And it's one of our characters that say, you shouldn't talk that way to your wife. And he's like, that's not my fucking wife. Well, incidentally, he is also very foul-mouthed. Yeah. There is a bit of swearing in this game, but they do the whole thing in the Beano where it's just replaced with, like, garbled symbols. Yeah. And he explains that when they are going to launch the rocket in town... When they're supposed to clear the rocket for the launch, she stayed in a dangerous area to check on something and they had to abort the launch, at which point the whole project got scrapped. Mm -hmm. So Sid blames her directly for his failure to achieve his dream as being the first man into space. Yeah, which even though it's Shinra's fault for not funding another launch, he halted the launch. He didn't want to get his colleague killed and she was doing her due diligence yeah, so she stayed to be his assistant and take care of him, even while he treats her like shit. And take his verbal abuse because she feels she deserves it. Yeah, so I can't blame you getting a bad impression of the guy on that basis. Yeah. While we're talking to Sid, Shinra show up as they plan to take his plane, the tiny Bronco, away from him. Why would they want to take the tiny Bronco again? Technically, they owned it. Ah. And he explains here, they took away the space program that he was due to pilot, and he took away his airship, the Highwind, that he was the pilot for. And now they're taking the last thing he had, which was the plane. We undercut Shinra, though, by stealing the plane first and escape with Sid, who now joins just so he can give a fuck you to Shinra. Yeah. Spite is a great motivator. Shinra shoot down the plane, but at this point we do start using it as a boat that can cross shallow waters. Yeah. We also take a little aside here to visit the most western continent in the game, Wutai. And this is the point where Yuffie shows up and betrays us by stealing all our materia. I was so pissed. That bitch stole my materia. I should have seen it coming. The red flags were there. Mm-hmm. We first met her when she picked a fight with us. Mm-hmm. I had to work really hard to make sure she didn't steal all my money and run away. Mm-hmm. Of course she was going to steal all our materia. Of course she was. Why didn't I see it coming? She's a wee shite. Yes, so we chase her back to her hometown in Wutai. We chase her all around town, which incidentally has us run into the Turks who are here on vacation. They're supposed to be pursuing us for, like, the whole game. But because, like, they're on holiday, they're like, we're not getting paid to capture you, so we're just not going to do it. (laughs) That's iconic! Eventually, in chasing Yuffie around, we find that she gets captured, along with Elena of the Turks, by someone returning back to the story, 
good old Don Canero. Ah, yes, Conehead. Yep. We work with the Turks to save Elena and Yuffie from Don Canero. Yeah, that's soured cannoli. The Turks turn a blind eye to finding us in town here as a way to thank us for helping to save Elena. Yuffie gives us back our materia as a way to thank us and apologise for stealing it in the first place. And Yuffie returns to the party never to cause problems again in the story. I'm surprised that I let her back into the party considering, you know, bitch stole my materia. She didn't even say sorry. Yeah, so she didn't. <laughs> she was like, well, I guess I gotta give it back. Only fair. I wouldn't put it past her to have stolen it again if she'd wanted to. Because she's an optional character, this is the one and only story development she gets the entire game. Yeah. With Yuffie back on side, we move on with our new task of chasing Severoth to somewhere called the Temple of the Ancients. We need the Keystone first, which is currently in the possession of the owner of the gold saucer named Dio. Oh, the guy who gives us the buggy. Yes. He won't give us the stone until we do a little something for him. Yes. And I thought, oh God, I'm going to have to suck his dick, aren't I? <laughs> uh, but all he wanted me to do was fight in the gladiator pit thing. Yeah, you know, just like in Disney World. Just like in Disney World. Yeah. Ah, yes. I have fond memories of Disneyland. Going to the water parks, eating ice cream buckets, murdering my little brother in hand-to-hand combat in the Disney gladiator pits. Ah, how we laughed. <laughs> this is also the first instance of the game where we find out that Sephiroth is chasing something called the Black Materia. We don't know what it does yet, but we just know he's after it. And if Sephiroth's after it, we have to get it first. Yeah, it cannot be good. We spend the night in the Gold Saucer, and it was while we're staying in the hotel that we get a knock on the door with Aerith showing up. To finally go on that date we promised way back when we first met her. I mean, we've just not had time up until now. No. This is another of these things which change depending on how nice you've been to different members of your party through the game. Depending on what you've done so far, you either get the date with Aerith, Tifa, Yuffie, or if you've been horrible to all the girls so far, Barrett. Oh, you'd go on a date with Barrett? Yes. It's Aww. not It's not really a date, it's more just kinda of like boys hanging out. Yeah, yeah, of course. Like if you go on a date with the girls, you'll get a scene where you go to a theatre and you get to take part in a play. You don't get to take part in the play with Barrett. Aww. You just end up going to the the monorail around the amusement park. At which point Barrett's like, why the fuck am I out on a night out with you? <laughs> That's quite meta, isn't it? Yeah. It's a weird scene. It makes more sense when it's one of the girls. Especially when it's Aerith, who promised us a date at the start of the game. Yeah. As the date is wrapping up, we find Cat She being super suspicious with the keystone in his hand. We chase him around the park until we see him throw the keystone to Seng of the Turks. Turns out, Cat Shi is a spy for Shinra. I was so angry. I'm pretty sure this was another time where I screamed at the TV. Yeah, because you just had Yuffie betray you, and now you have Cat Shi betray you. Why do bad things always happen to good people? <laughs> it's not fair. And then, like, what? We're supposed to have him in our party and act like nothing happened while he has Aerith's mum and Barrett's daughter hostage. Yeah. I was so angry. I hated him. Like, nothing he can ever do is going to redeem himself in my eyes. Nothing. And if you wanted to kill him right now, it turns out it would be pointless because Cat She is actually a remote control toy being controlled by someone at Shinra HQ. So I don't even get the satisfaction of wringing his little neck. Although he does admit that while he has to help Shinra, he's not entirely loyal to Shinra's plan. I mean, that's apparent. He's not really loyal to anything. 
For now, though, we just have to comply and continue on. Yeah. We find the Temple of the Ancients and find Seng, who's been mortally wounded by Sephiroth. Turns out Sephiroth has also found the temple. He gives us back the keystone, and we now have to explore this mysterious temple with Aerith in the party. Yeah, she's mandatory in this section of the game. Yes. There are a lot of puzzles. The Temple of the Ancients is just a massive big puzzle house. They're fun puzzles, but loads and loads of puzzles. As you get to the centre, though, you realise why. In the centre of the temple, there is a room of hieroglyphs that depict a great meteor that will come to destroy the planet. And here we find out this is Sephiroth's master plan to use the black materia within this temple to summon this meteor and injure the planet in a life-threatening event so powerful that it will not only most likely kill everyone on the planet, but that the world will need to summon up so much of the life stream spirit energy to heal it. And that's where he'll be, absorbing as much of this energy as he can so that he can control the spirit energy of the planet. In my notes, I called it Instrumentality Evangelion fuckity Duda. Pretty much, yeah. Despite giving us this long evil monologue, he doesn't actually take the Black Materia. Though with good reason, the whole temple is booby-trapped so whoever takes the Black Materia eventually shrinks the temple so much that it will kill them, because the temple itself is the Black Materia. Ah, right. So by taking the Black Materia out of the temple, you shrink it to the point where if you're inside it will essentially kill you. Yeah. This also stops Cloud's party from taking the Black Materia, apart from one member. Cat she offers to sacrifice one of the toy cats he's piloting. Yes, because as soon as he does this, he shows up in his new body. Yeah, so for me, that was not very much of a redemption. I was not. I was like, great, thanks, but you're still on the shit list. But for now, hooray, we have the black materia. Hooray! Oh no, we seem to have become possessed and instantly gave the black materia to Sephiroth. Oh no. That was fucking quick. Yeah, we don't know what happens here. Just Cloud literally grabs the black materia. Sephiroth turns out and goes, gimme. And Cloud just idles over and gives him the black materia. Body completely controlled by Sephiroth. It makes me wonder, right, is if Sephiroth wasn't going to take the black materia so he wouldn't get squished. If no one took the black materia, what would have happened? It's implied that one of the tattooed cloak guys that we keep finding around oh, the world... Oh, that they would have taken it. ...would have got it for Sephiroth and sacrificed their body for him. Ah, right, okay. So Sephiroth would have got his hands on it one way or another. Turns out he went for another. We wait out and wake up in the village of Gongaga, which is near the Gold Saucer. We didn't talk about it earlier. Aerith is missing, who told us in a dream that she's off to stop Sephiroth. That same dream also featured Sephiroth telling us that he's going to stop Aerith. Turns out they're both getting locked into a stop-off. We follow the breadcrumbs of Aerith's location back to a place called the City of the Ancients, a.k.a. the Forgotten City. It's a derelict metropolis, but it's made out of things that you'd get under the sea, so shells and coral and fish bones and that sort of thing. My heart was in my mouth, genuinely, because it's a bit of a labyrinth and a bit of a maze, and you don't know where she is in this place. I was just constantly, frantically searching anywhere and everywhere in hopes of finding her. And that music that's underneath, even now when that plays, I still feel this sense of dread, not knowing where she was and, oh my, she's not going to be able to defeat Sephiroth on her own. And I'm pretty sure that other people who have played it will probably be feeling the same. Mm-hmm. It's a very effective piece of music for where it is. We search the city until we eventually find Aerith, praying on an altar. As we get up to the altar, Cloud goes up to check up on Aerith, at which point he gets possessed by Sephiroth again, who then tries to use Cloud's body to kill Aerith. You can't move at this point. So I was getting really confused, like, okay, right, what do I do? 
you're naturally going to try pressing random buttons on the controller. Every time you press the circle button, you'll then perform the next step of coming up towards Aerith, sword in hand, to swing at her. You're having to push Cloud into doing the next thing, mm-hmm. and you're powerless to stop it. You've got no choice. You're in this with Cloud, to an extent. Thankfully, before he lands the swipe, your other party member shouts, what the fuck are you doing? And he stops. His body was possessed by Sephiroth at that point. Mm-hmm. Sephiroth then obviously decides, ah, screw it. If a job's worth doing, it's worth doing yourself. Sephiroth falls from the ceiling, sword facing downwards, and plunges it right through Aerith's body. <sighs> this kills her. This is the death of Aerith. This was also the spoiler you were alluding to in our intro, wasn't it? Yeah. It's a very powerful scene. We get a beautiful version of our theme song playing under this. As we have to come to terms with the fact Aerith is now dead. We also have to fight Genova at this point, but there's no taking away from the fact that we've just lost Aerith from our party. Throughout playing this whole thing, I knew that this scene was coming. Mm-hmm. And I was dreading it. Whenever something bad might have happened to Aerith, I was worried that, oh, but this is this scene, isn't it? You'd think that knowing that spoiler would make it less effective, but when it happened, it still hit me really, really hard. I cried. I cried so much. It's hard not to. Even I know it's coming when I play it. Cloud takes her body down to the water and lays her out as she just sinks into the water out of your party and never to be seen again for the game. Before the burial, though, when Cloud is holding Aerith's body in his arms, Sethroth is there monologuing, oh, it doesn't matter because she's in the live stream, she's going to come one with me, and Cloud, he's not buying it, he calls bullshit on that. I don't care. The person that I love is not here anymore, and it's because of you. It shows how far beyond insane Sephiroth is and how far above humans he thinks he is. And he thinks he can see the bigger picture, but actually, he can't. He's lost insight into how valuable human life is. Mm -hmm. That dialogue between the, oh, the soul's going somewhere else, you know, it's fine, compared to, well, no, it's we're never going to actually see this person again. It's a really, oh, I could get torn into that key scene for ages, but We'll leave it there for now. Mm -hmm. And that's the end of disc one. Yes. (laughs) That is just the first third of the game, technically. The whole thing with Midgar would be enough to be one game in itself. Oh, it is. That remake you've done is just all the events of Midgar. Admittedly pad out to make better runtime, but still. It's well established that Cloud is under some kind of influence of Sephiroth. Mm -hmm. Despite the fact that he doesn't want to be. He used to want to be like Sephiroth and now he realises what Sephiroth is. He wants to reject it. The struggle within Cloud in the game is overcoming that dark side of him. I'll talk more about like what Cloud and Sephiroth and their dynamic represents at the final analysis, I think. Yeah. Without Aerith, we now have to continue on with the adventure. We now explore further of this northern continent as we venture through the now snowy lands of the Ice Glen and the Great Glacier beyond. And the way we get there, though, becomes our next minigame of snowboarding yeah we just snowboard we snowboard to get over our grief feeling kind of low take the slopes yes how did you find the snowboarding oh i was really bad at it i didn't like it very much it was actually kind of like the snowboarding mini game in tack and the power of the juju yeah it was just as difficult to control as the uh, tack one if not more so 
in the little snow village, a child gave Cloud a snowboard. That's a lot of money wasted, but okay. Benefits us, I suppose. And on the snowboard, Cloud barrels down this slalom course hill, avoiding snowmen and catching balloons for points. And you can do tricks and flips and stuff if you want, but you do hit top speeds of 100 kilometers per hour. Yeah, that is dangerously fast. You're expected to just do that without bumping into anything or crashing into the sides. There's one part where you're in a deeply dense forest going down the hill 100 miles an hour and then wonder why that you're knocking down trees every so often. (laughs) I just, I couldn't understand why there was a snowboard minigame in there and all the course set up, considering this was supposed to be a part of the mountain that nobody goes to and that people have not returned from. Apparently we know why no one's returned from it is because that people keep crashing their snowboards into that dense forest it's going so fast sorry i uh right okay i've got that out of my system <laughs> as we get through this arctic continent we end up at the north crater we venture through with tifa joining the party this time and eventually catch up with sephiroth we beat his maw genova Aye, and we get back the black materia who we give to red this time as cloud clearly can't be trusted with it yeah I think you can give it to whoever in your party you want, can't you? Only a few people can take it. Yeah, there's a few people who can take it, but you can choose who you give it to. Mm -hmm. Sephiroth begins to mess with us, implying that Cloud wasn't the person who came to Nibelheim five years ago, instead showing the events happening with a black-haired guy dressed exactly like Cloud. Cloud is quick to write this off as bullshit, but Tifa doesn't agree. Ooh. Something to her seems off, seeming to believe Sephiroth's story. Sephiroth then explains that Cloud doesn't really exist. There is a failed experiment by Hojo to clone Sephiroth, implanted with the memories of someone called Cloud, who probably did exist, and is the person that Tifa remembers from her childhood. This is why Sephiroth was able to take control of Cloud at the Temple of the Ancients and at the city. Mm -hmm. And does it once more to trick Red into giving Cloud back the Black Materia, who then takes it to the ceiling where we find the real body of Sephiroth. What we've been chasing till now has turned out to be something like a clone or a spirit animal, whatever the fuck. I assumed it was a clone. I don't think a spirit apparition could do what he did to Aerith. And President Shinra, the Shinra president. Yeah, but I mean, uh, fuck the Shinra president, who cares about him? Doing this triggers the end of days like Sephiroth wanted. The rest of the party escapes thanks to the help of Shinra, who have followed Sephiroth out here on the airship. They wanted to get to that promised land as well. Mm -hmm. Just reminding the audience in case they've forgotten, because there's a lot that's happened. Although Cloud doesn't escape with them. Cloud, having realised what his identity is, is paralysed by it. He just can't move. The party waits out, and we wake up seven days later controlling Tifa. She and Barrett have been captured by Shinra in their escape though have no clue about what happened to the others. Barrett gets Tifa back up to speed of what she's missed over her week sleeping and opens the blinds to reveal the giant red meteor in the sky that is coming to impact the planet, as per Sephiroth's plan in the Temple of the Ancients. And just to make things worse, we are in Junon Harbour, where their big weapon is. One of the leaders decides that, right, we're going to execute you now because... 
it's your fault. All this has happened, it's your fault. It doesn't matter if it's your fault, actually, but we say it's your fault, and everyone's going to believe it's your fault, and they're going to feel better because we've dealt with a problem. Yes. So we're going to be executed on live television to try and appease the nation. While the execution's about to start, though, we find that Sephiroth summoning Meteor has triggered a prophecy of the planet sending out its Godzilla-like monsters to protect it in such a time as the world's going to be destroyed. These monsters are called the Weapons. Creatively named. Well done, planet. In the case of emergency, break glass to get kaiju. And one of the Weapons choose this moment to attack Junon Harbour. This sends everything into chaos as they go to battle stations and fight back against this giant monster that's attacking by sea. While everyone else in the press abandons, one plucky reporter stays to interview Shinra's head of weapons, Scarlet, about the attack. Though uses this chance to knock out Scarlet with sleeping gas. The reporter rips off their disguise to reveal it's Cat She. Hooray! Going full face now and being all, fuck Shinra, I want to help. He saves Barrett, Though Tifa is on her own as she's already been put in the gas chamber. Yeah, you have to do a minigame to try and get her out. Yes. Thankfully, Weapon has used its massive hyperbeam to slash through Junon Harbour, which happens to break open the room where her gas chamber's in. Thanks, Mothra. Much <laughs> appreciated. This favour is returned by Junon Harbour's massive cannon, the Sister Ray, blowing Weapon's head off and putting an end to it. Tifa escapes down the barrel of the Sister Ray until she gets at the end where Scarlet chases her down. They have a big slapping match. Literally a slap fight at the end of a massive cannon above the water. That's brilliant. <laughs> Eventually we down Scarlet, but since she's got all the Shinra guards behind her, we're still kind of fucked. It's then that we're encouraged to jump off the end of the gun by a voice above us. As we run to the end of the gun with gunfire going off, the massive airship called the High Wind comes flying overhead and throws out a rope. We jump off the cannon, grab the rope, and sail off into the sky. Oh, that was an incredible moment. Yes, because this was Sid's original airship that we talked about earlier. There's been some really good effective parts, but my highlight that's made me happiest in the game was getting the high wind, cutting about inside it, and talking to one of the mechanics, asking like, oh, hey, how'd you manage to get the ship? And he gushes about how great a pilot and stuff Sid is how they were really sick of being treated so badly by Shinra that they decided to all mutiny and they're all part of the gang now looking around my airship. Ah, it was genuinely a truly, truly magical moment. One of my favourite places in gaming. The only thing that's letting it down is that I couldn't decorate it myself Animal (laughs) Crossing style. But apart from that, I loved it. I love it so much. And I've got all my friends there. You've got a chocobo stable. Yes. We took a little aside here to go and do something which you did ask for earlier in the game. To go catch and keep some chocobos. The chocobo farm can now be rented and we can use it to keep some for riding around the world map that we don't lose when we get off them. I highly recommend that you get yourself a chocobo at some point in the game Mm -hmm. because it means that you're not going to be interrupted every two minutes with an enemy fight. So I went chocobo hunting. You caught two. I caught two. You get different tiers of chocobo from like super uber great pedigree to runt of the litter. Mm -hmm. My first one was a bit of a runt. I named him after Neil from The Young Ones, who sings the amazing song, Hole in My Shoe. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that Hole in My Shoe is just how Sephiroth feels sitting in that live stream goop thing in the North Crater. <laughs> oh no, I've got to kill the last of the ancients again. 
Okay. We tracked down the rivers of the place closest to the life stream in a small town called Medeal on the south of the map, accessible only by the high wind. It's here that we find Cloud. He's contracted Mako poisoning and lost all ability to speak like normal human beings. So no real change then. Eh? Uh, yeah, I had to get that little jab in there. I hope you're proud of yourself. Tifa stays behind to look after Cloud. And now we've just lost another party member. Jeez, they're dropping like flies at this party. Cloud's all mentally broken. Tifa's left to become his maid. Aerith has snuffed it. Who's next? Aerith good... has snuffed it. That's such a tasteless thing to say. Fucking hell. It's a good thing we got Yuffie back when we did the five. The remaining gang have a debate. And based on everyone left, decide with sound logic and reason that, ah, fuck it, Sid should be leader now because high wind. Basically, yeah. It's strange you'd think Barrett would want to be the leader, but I think just his time in Avalanche kind of made him think, nah, this is not for me. Yeah. Being a leader is not my life path. This is also where we learn of Shinra's new plan, courtesy of our industrial spy, Kat Shi. Shinra have found four huge materia that they're going to load into the rocket at Rocket Town and launch them into the meteor to blow it up. This must be stopped for some inadequately explained reason. Because huge material is special or some shit like that. It's probably also because, um, hey, this is going to cause a fucking devastating explosion. Like, Yeah, to the meteor. That's true. I'll be the first to admit, the plan here is weak on the ground. Is this whole, oh, the huge material are important knowledge that can't be lost. But the existence of them has mattered nothing to the plot until this moment. It's like the dark program, but not good. This part of the game just does feel like it's padding the runtime. Do you think? Yeah. For once, Shinra may have a point. You may be able to understand why they're doing what they're doing. Even on a purely selfish level, like, I don't want to be hit by a meteor. Maybe we should shoot it out of the sky. We don't want to lose the thing that we are ruling over and mm-hmm. all our money. Yeah, I'm not sold on the gang's plan that this needs to be stopped as a high priority. But it's what we're doing anyway. It does give us some interesting missions that we have to take on with Sid as the party leader. We save North Corral from being destroyed by a speeding train. Incidentally, that's the hardest of the four materials to save, and you managed to do that. Good job. Yeah, that was actually quite a fun wee minigame, that one. We save a small town called Fort Condor from an invading army of Shinra troops using another unique minigame that plays out like a real-time strategy game. Our format will save for when we do Age of Empires 2. Just very lately, how did you find the minigame? I found it very, very stressful. Yeah, I had to talk you through this one a lot. Because, for context... I came across Fort Condor in the first half of the game. They needed money for financial aid, and I did not have the money. I wanted to go and grind for it and pull all the money together to help them out there and then. And if it hadn't been for Sandro saying, like, don't worry, you come back here later in the game, I probably would have just done that. But it was such... The stakes felt very high, because it wasn't just... Falling on my face, snowboarding. Child's play. Pretty sure I did that when I was eight. Coming dead last in a chocobo race. Whatever, I can try again. But I've been thinking about those people at Fort Condor since disc one. I had to help them in their time of need, and I was worried if I'd failed this mini game, then I wouldn't have been able to help them. Thankfully you didn't. You saved them, you got the huge materia, and the summon phoenix, just for good measure. Yes. I was very pleased. You did have to talk me through a lot of it. Mm-hmm. But that was mostly because I was so stressed and anxious and I didn't know what to do. After getting the second huge materia though, we go back to check in on Tifa and Cloud to find Medeal is being attacked by Ultima Weapon. We have a brief boss battle with this giant monster before Medeal begins to break apart, falling into the life stream. 
Everyone flees town and it's safe, except for Cloud and Tifa who fall in. This triggers a very long introspective section where Tifa has to explore Cloud's history to make sense of what the fuck he even is. Such an Evangelion moment, isn't this? Yeah. Tifa and Cloud are basically in this dream realm. Mm -hmm. There's like lots of different versions of Cloud about one in the sky and a great deal of turmoil and three separate ones blocking off three key memories. Mm -hmm. It makes her realise that she definitely remembers this person called Cloud from her childhood. He does exist. So what happened in Nibelheim? And it's now that Cloud can finally put his personality together and reveal the truth. That Cloud was never a member of Soldier, but he was there in Nibelheim as a nameless, blue-uniformed Shinra troop. The Soldier that we thought was Cloud was actually Zack. Yes. Now we find out that Zack was the one who Cloud was envisioning in his story from five years ago. Cloud left Nibelheim to pursue glory and wanted to join Soldier Mm -hmm. and couldn't and failed. And he was so ashamed of coming home and having failed that he didn't let Tifa recognise him. He didn't reveal himself at all. Yeah, it turns out that he was wearing his Shinra helmet with a mask so no one could recognise his face. Yeah. And the incident five years ago, Mm -hmm. Cloud was the guard that stopped Tifa from going inside the reactor. Mm -hmm. He wasn't in there when... Sephiroth made the realisation of what he is. Mm -hmm. But he was the person that threw Sephiroth into the live stream. Yes. After the showdown between Sephiroth and now seemingly Zack, at which point Zack got his ass handed to him, Cloud took Zack's sword and plunged it through Sephiroth's chest. Him and Sephiroth had a fight, at which point Sephiroth stabbed Cloud, but then Cloud used Sephiroth's own sword that was stabbed through his chest to throw Sephiroth into the Mako well below. This is how Sephiroth then washed up in the North Crater, which is one of the points which are closest to the life stream. One thing I did show Jen, if you now go back to the Shinra mansion and into the basement, you see a bonus cutscene of what happened after Cloud and Sephiroth's fight, was that Zack and Cloud were kept in the basement and experimented on. This is the point where Cloud and Zack got injected with Genova cells in part of Hojo's plan to try and clone Sephiroth. Mm-hmm. This is how Zack's memories get into Cloud. Zack managed to escape his vat and rescued Cloud, brought them both back to Midgar, and when Zack was then killed by Shinra, Cloud took his sword. Now with the memories of being Zack, he then kind of comes back online. This being that's now had his memories mixed up with Zack's. One thing that was revealed in the childhood memories was that he always felt like excluded and not part of things. Mm Mm-hmm. That's actually another thing that him and Sephiroth have got in common, is that they're both very lonely people, mm-hmm. not sure of who they are, and they latch on to whatever they can find, even if it's not really their own. Shinra's experiments on Genova is rooted in the fact that Genova has powers, so we infuse some of her DNA with us, then we'll get her powers, and that's where Sethroth came from, that's where Cloud came from. So they all share that same genetic material, basically. Yes. And they call it cloning, so it's actually a tiny bit misleading. When it's genetic augmentation, it's not cloning. I think what they mean is it's a clone of the experiment they did on Sephiroth. Oh, right, okay, yeah. It's like in the Marvel Universe, they tried to recreate the super serum that they gave the Captain America and give it to other people that kept causing problems. There is a whole theme of identity and what it means to be human, like, right throughout the game. Cloud doesn't really have, like, a cohesive identity of his own. It's a combination of his past, 
Zach, Sephiroth and Tifa. He's trying to make a shape out of that. A bit like how clouds only have shapes because we give them shapes. Mm Kind of the same with Cloud and his identity. Not just in the facts that we're given about him, but also as we're playing him. We decide what material he gets as well. I'll wax more lyrically about this at the end. We've got to keep on with the story. So the truth is now out. Cloud goes back to being a functioning adult. As functional adult as you can be, all things considered. Yeah. And returns to leading the party, with Tifa now rejoining as well. We return back to the quest to find the huge materia, the third world being in Junon Harbour, where we have to save it in a submarine battle. This does form its own mini-game. How'd you find this one? You pilot it in this polygon Star Fox grid realm, mm-hmm. and you control how deep it goes into the water and how fast it goes in the directions. You've got to track down enemy submarines and bomb them to oblivion. Once you've got all the submarines, you win. Mm-hmm. I was pure happy to have stolen a submarine. It was great. <laughs> we do get to keep it now for exploring the world map, but it doesn't have the functionality of the high wind, sadly. It's not really the same. Plus, like you don't have the same rapport with the crew, considering you know they are hostages. The novelty wears off after a little bit, because it's just you can't use it as much, you know. You can't park it anywhere either. Yeah, there's only two places to dock it. Yeah, it's like having an electric car in the 2020s. Mm. Time to find the fourth and final piece of huge materia currently loaded into the rocket at Rocket Town and ready to be launched into the meteor. We hijack the rocket, thanks to the assistance of Sid, and become the first men into space. So Sid does get his dream. Yes. Plus also Shira. The assistant. Who came along since Sid is a prat who did have a faulty engine. See, there was a good reason why she kept checking it. Yes. We remove the materia and use the escape pod to go back to Earth, leaving the rocket to ram into the meteor and cause an explosion. Of course, since Shinra have no huge materia left, it does nothing. Good job, Cloud and the gang. You've doomed the Earth in this pointless side quest. Yay. But to be fair, they may have been worried that it would have made it worse. If you did fail to get any of the huge materia, it still would do nothing as it hits the rocket. It is a pointless quest, but you don't know that yet. Yeah. Isn't that just life, though? You do, like, quests and then you don't realise until later that they're pointless. So, after working so hard to gather these huge materia from Shinra and keep them out of the wrong hands, the gang get together and agree... Ah, fuck it, let's go dump this all in Bugenhagen. What was the bloody point of this section of the game? He's the person that they trust most of the materia. He's the planet man. But He's a wise planet man, Sandro. You trust everything to the old wise planet man. That's the rules. Right, we get a great summon out of this, which you did use once, I think. Bahamut Zero. Oh yeah, Bahamut Zero, yeah. The Dayak Bahamut. <laughs> there is also something you can do that if you level up every green materia, for example, you can then get something called Master Magic, which will then do all green spells in one materia ball. You can have five or six materia, or just one. <laughs> Bug and Huggin also suggests that we find the solution. Bug and Huggin! <laughs> that we find the solution to beat Sephiroth if we go to where Aerith died and try to find out what she was trying to do before Sephiroth iced that hole. Can, can you not describe Aerith's death in such tasteless ways? <laughs> We found out that she was trying to use the amazingly unmentioned until now white materia, which would summon Holy. Sadly, this materia was lost when she was. Or was it? Sandra suggested that I take a slight detour. We use the submarine to go through a bunch of underwater caves. We surface to like a saltwater lake, I think, Mm -hmm. with a waterfall. We go behind the waterfall to find Lucretia, Vincent's lost love and Sephiroth's birth mother. 
Yes, the one who actually gave birth to him. Yeah, just standing there in the middle of a cave. So she wanted to die, but the Genova cells that were implanted inside of her wouldn't let her die or something. You can tell that one of the big inspirations into Final Fantasy was the Star Wars franchise. You've got something in the plot that makes no sense, blame it on the Force. You've got something in Final Fantasy that makes no sense, blame it on Genova cells. <laughs> At this point, we get a cutscene which shows Vincent's backstory. Back when he was a Turk, he was assigned as the bodyguard to some Shima scientists in the Shima mansion, one of them being Lucretia. He fell in love with Lucretia, but she was in love with another scientist who chose him over Vincent. Her and the scientist plan an experiment where she gets pregnant and then they inject the baby with Genova cells. This would become Sephiroth. Oh, and Vincent gets shot and experimented on too by Hojo, hence Vampire Man. So the only thing she wants to know is that if Sephiroth is alive or dead. Vincent lies to her and tells her that he's dead and then she disappears and then that's it. Yes. This is the only backstory we get for Vincent in the entire game. It doesn't make... The whole thing makes no sense. It feels like it was done at the last minute. Vincent's backstory feels so unfinished and unnecessary. I get he's a side character, but I hope that it would at least be, like, more. At least with Yuffie's story, it's got, like, an event that happens. Yeah, she gets a whole quest. She gets a whole quest. And this cutscene is just nothing. It feels insulting, actually. Now, I have to explain. When they were writing the game, Yuffie and Vincent were the last two to be written into the game. They were originally going to have no impact on the story. They wanted to put a bit more effort into that, so they did write some events at the last minute. Yuffie's gets this whole story on this other continent, because it was the one that was done first. Vincent gets no unique areas apart from this one cave. So they had to put a lot of his backstory into existing areas. Hence why it all happened in the Shinra Mansion and in Nibelheim. And they had to tie his story into one of the existing stories about Sephiroth's lineage. Yeah. Hence why his story is so deeply unsatisfying. I'll get into this later, but Vincent's story is one of the things that the developers agreed needed to be fleshed out first. If they're going to flesh anything out in Final Fantasy VII. Right, back to the main story. As we leave the City of the Ancients... We find Diamond Weapon coming out of the water and lumbering over to Midgar. Here we find that Rufus has had the big cannon at Junon Harbour moved to Midgar so they can point it at the barrier blocking the North Crater. We stop the weapon by fighting it ourselves, but this is a delaying tactic at best. Thankfully, Shimmer uses its time to fire the cannon, but at the same time Diamond Weapon fires at Midgar. Shimmer blasts a hole through Weapon's chest and breaks the barrier at the North Crater in one single shot. Though Diamond doesn't miss either. His shots rain on the Shinra headquarters and blow up the president's suite with Rufus inside. I found something very poetic in how Rufus died. Mm -hmm. Considering that he's now head of Shinra, Mm -hmm. who has been destroying the planet for all of this game, basically. It's a bit poetic that after spending so long destroying the planet, it's the planet that destroys him in the end. Yeah, that's true. Bit of karma there. That's exactly what the weapons were designed to do. You fuck with the planet, the planet fucks with you back. They succeed, even though most of the weapons are dead at this point. They've succeeded in their goal. There's no one to head Shinra now. All we need now is Godzilla to rise up and destroy the BP company and our world will be safe too. <laughs> I mean, we say safe, but safe air. I would rather contest with Godzilla than I would with the BP company. <laughs> yeah. Godzilla would at least make their petrol prices more reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> With this barrier gone, we can now storm the crater. But before we go, we find that Hojo is still gathering Mako even after the cannon has been fired. 
This is dangerous and it might destroy Midgar, so we have to take a quick detour to put a stop to Hojo. This is also when we find out that Kat Shi's controller is someone called Reeve, who works for Shinra. We have seen in other cutscenes, if you spotted him. I didn't spot him. It's one of those things that you could probably play the game again and you'd spot him. Mm -hmm. With the president dead, it was just two right-hand people, Heidegger and Scarlet, who are both jockeying to take control of the company. It creates a power vacuum. Yeah, and they both get Reeve imprisoned, though not stopping Kat Shi for reasons I couldn't quite understand. Apparently he can just control Kat Shi from the Shinra jails. It's never really said how he controls Kat Shi, does it? It's not entirely explained. No. no, no. We return to Midgar and fight up to the cannon and then move over to Hojo. This is where we reveal the shocking truth. Hojo is the father. You are the father. <laughs> <laughs> Lucretia and Genova start doing their victory dance as Hojo runs to the back. Yeah. Hojo is Sephiroth's father. Yes. Hojo is the one who got Lucretia pregnant. That shocked me, actually. Mostly because it implies that... Hojo has had sex once in his life. Not only implies that he's had sex, it also implied that he cucked Vincent. Yeah, and Lucretia has no taste in men. Vincent deserved better, I'm sorry. That's terrible. Poor man. And also, no wonder Sephiroth's so fucked up with him as a dad. He's an absent father. And even if he wasn't an absent father, he'd still be a rubbish one. Ugh, you can tell I'm not a big fan of the guy. He is trying to make up for it now. He's trying to send as much macro energy to Sephiroth to use for his plan. That's for his own selfish reasons, though. That's not to help Sephiroth at the goodness of his heart. No, he's just curious to see what would happen if the world ends. He's a scientist. He's going to know these things. And saying that, it kind of makes sense. They do have similar traits, right? Both are loners and weirdos. Intelligent, single-minded, ambitious, and absolutely unhinged beyond belief and have no value for human life. We fight Hojo, finally kill him. Yeah, after several metamorphoses, every time you thought you'd killed him, there'd always be another one to take his place. It was mm. really, really annoying. But with him beat, though, this will mark the end of disc two and into the final mission slash final disc. Onto the crater with a little power leveling. Yeah, you need to make sure that your party are leveling up and getting all the items that you need. If you went for a crunch for time, there's a lot of side quests you can do right now to get everyone's final weapon and their limit break, which we've not really explained till now, have we? No, it's like a big, bad final move. Yeah, you have a bar that fills up every time you take damage. When that bar fills, you get a special move that each character can perform that does an extremely high amount of damage. Or, in Aerith's case, an extremely high level of healing. Mm -hmm. We go to the North Crater and descend this deep cave until we get to the final layer. Nothing left between us and the end. Nothing but Genova. Now we're in her complete form. Yeah, because before we were just fighting parts of her. Mm -hmm. All the fights are broken up into stages of life. It was Genova birth, Genova life, Genova death. And this is considered afterlife, but it's also Genova complete. Right. Needs to be said though, bit of a shit fight. The Genova bosses are they're challenging enough, but by this point in the game, you've fought Genova so many times that it's not that much of a threat anymore. No. She's just kind of a MacGuffin? Kind of, yes. Yeah. Genova is basically just this alien queen who landed on the planet and completely fucked up civilization by her existence. Which admittedly what would happen to our world if we found out that aliens did exist. I'd like to talk a good bit more about Genova in my final analysis. Okay. But I was kind of disappointed. I expected her a bit more of a villain and have a lot more agency than she does. Yeah, that's only because of the Final Fantasy house. That's true. That is actually true. But... <laughs> Still, it was like, 
can you really call her a villain? Not Final Fantasy House Genova, because she was. Mm-hmm. But the Genova in this game is just... It's the effect on other people that she has on her mm-hmm. that makes her most powerful. She's a background prop more than she is an active element of the story. That's the point, though, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I think she's very symbolic of stuff, but I'll talk more about that later on. Mm-hmm. With Genova dispatched, now we come back face-to-face with Sephiroth. You may have noticed that we've not really mentioned his appearances since the last time we were in the North Crater. Yeah, he's not really appeared since. Bar the recollection and Cloud's memory of what really happened five years ago. Mm-hmm. We get in a fight with a creature called Bizarro Sephiroth. As you expect in the final boss, the baddie takes on a terrorist size when I fight that as a boss fight. Yeah, it's this disgusting two-headed winged mutant thing. Mm-hmm. And you have to kill one body part at a time. Mm-hmm. I think one of its arms heals the rest of it. You can't just kill it all at once. It's like one body part at a time, a bit like Genova. Mm-hmm. It's not the hardest fight in the world. It just took a while to finish. No, it's still had some challenge, but it didn't kill me or anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you're just keeping on top of your healing, taking out the damage with your limit break. Making sure it shields up, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Eventually, with enough of your tactics, he goes down and you win the fight. It fades out. And I was like really pleased with myself. I thought, oh my God, I've beaten Sephiroth, haven't I, Sandro? I've beaten Sephiroth, haven't I? I've beaten Sephiroth, haven't I? And literally, as the screens fade out to black, the music kicks in. And what a fucking tune it is. <laughs> oh, genuinely, my heart like sank to the floor. I'm like, what? But it can't be. I defeated him. It can't be. This genuinely is probably one of the most famous tunes in the game, called One Winged Angel. Yeah, I should have known that this would not be the last time I'd be seeing him, considering that that theme is really famous, and I know that music. It's playing under us right now, and it is this massive, operatic piece that, if it's not started by now, I'm going to just gently fade into the song right now to hear the lyrics of it. It's all sung in Latin, and it's just this grand piece. Oh my god, the song is horrifying and menacing. It reminds me of Mars by Holst. Mm -hmm. Probably the most ominous piece of classical music ever. And O Fortuna, which is the intro theme to The X Factor. Like, you know, when the judges are on. The lyrics are actually taken from something over the tune of another part of that same symphony. Really? Yes. Of course, then mixed with the word Sephiroth. Yeah, of course. But underneath it, it's got this, like, unrepentant death march constant throughout the piece. It doesn't let up for a minute. Mm-hmm. It is this massive piece of music which will then lead into this massive final battle of Safer Sephiroth. Safer? We said this in the first half. There's a lot of translation errors in this game. I think this is supposed to be Seferin Sephiroth. That's what I thought, because Safer is not the word you just describe Sephiroth in any form. Especially not this one. It's definitely not safer than the last one. The safety is off. I think, like, one thing that slightly annoys me about Sephiroth being dubbed the one-winged angel is that there are seven wings. Yes. And He's this- got one arm wing... And then, like, instead of legs, he's got six other wings. Yes. Always back to sevens with this game, isn't it? I think it evokes, like, the biblically accurate angels. A bit like Evangelion does. Yeah, there's also comparisons to be made with Evangelion. Mm. I'm not just seeing these things because I like that anime. 
it's wholly intentional. Uh, wholly intentional, get it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> this fight, though, this one was a real challenge. Oh, this one was a real challenge. Right, whatever you do, keep using wall. It is a shield ability that you'll get, which covers both magical attacks and physical attacks. Mm-hmm. Whoever you've got in your party that does that, keep using it. Yeah, make sure you've always got a wall set up, because he will hit hard otherwise. And it probably will be one hit kills. Mm-hmm. And also preemptively heal people a fair bit. Like even if their health's not low now, a massive hit may end up causing them to just die. Especially if Sephiroth uses his strongest move of Supernova. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Sephiroth summons a meteor that's so powerful it destroys most of the solar system and puts a dent in the sun. And I was bracing myself for one hit kill because it's destroyed most of the solar system. Yeah, it plays a whole animation where you see it literally destroys Pluto, which isn't a planet anymore, so we don't care. A dwarf planet's still a planet, Sandro. It destroys the rings of Saturn. It blows through Jupiter. It just goes through all these other planets until it hits the sun and makes it expand, destroying the other planets. And he's just floating in the sun menacingly. And then he just comes back and it's done 5,000 damage while your health is like 6,000. Yeah. It's a big hit, but this guy just destroyed the fucking universe. Now, I thought about this and I realised what he's done. Because you have to remember, this is a fantasy world. This isn't Earth. Yeah. So what he's actually done is that he's done a move that destroyed our universe. That's created such a flash in the sky, it's done damage. But it's not actually destroyed this world. More what I thought was that it represents how Sephiroth has been messing with our minds the whole time. You're bracing yourself for a really big attack that's going to wipe your whole party out, and it doesn't. Ah, yeah. That actually does work, yeah. Sephiroth has been messing with us the whole game. This is almost a representation of us seeing through him. Yeah, this is him now doing it to us directly, the player. Yeah. That actually really works. But at the end of the day, regardless of how big the move is, his supernova move is the most bullshit long move in the fucking game. He literally destroys the solar system just to take 94% of your HP. A quick mega elixir that refills health solved two minutes of my life that I'm never getting back. Yeah, pretty much. With enough patience, enough damage, and enough time, you do eventually beat Sephiroth. I was actually shocked that I managed to beat him. Mm -hmm. You went through the game knowing that he was, like, the strongest thing ever, and I beat him. He's always been superior to Cloud. But then it's the final boss, but it's not the final time we fight Sephiroth. No, because as we're about to leave, Cloud is suddenly pulled away to a spirit thought in his head where it's one last final confrontation. Cloud against regular shirtless Sephiroth. No materia, no items, just a limit break. And while you can unlock this through side questing, for this one fight you get to use Cloud's strongest limit break, the Omni Slash. You slash him furiously, each swipe faster than the last, doing a lot more damage, and it gets him in one hit. Then we see him fall dead on the ground. It's symbolic of Cloud refusing to let the past or evil control him anymore. Yeah, he's exercising the demon from his mind. It's also interesting that Sephiroth is determined to cling on to control of Cloud. I felt that this fight was his last ditch attempt to take over Cloud's body to live again. Yes, 100% this is Cloud defeating the control that Sephiroth had over him. One thing we didn't really explain earlier, when we talked about the hooded guys in black with the tattoos, they've all felt compelled to go to the North Crater for something called Reunion. What we don't realise is that Cloud's incessant need to chase Sephiroth was him 
following the same compulsion to attend the reunion. Oh, right. He has been utterly controlled by Sephiroth. And in this moment is when he breaks that control. With a limit break? Yes. It's so interesting that a Sephiroth clinging to life is still a Sephiroth that wants to fight you. With him destroyed, though, we literally see him explode in a burst of light. What we now get here is a good, solid, almost nine-minute motion video sequence to end the game. Cloud looks around to see green magic around him. A hand reaches out. We think it's Aerith's. But as he comes out of this dream sequence of fighting Sephiroth, we realise it's Tifa saving Cloud from falling in now that he's back in reality. We find the gang and escape the cave, only to see Meteor is finally landing on Midgar and is causing destructive tornadoes which destroy the upper plates. Thankfully, Katshi had everyone take refuge in the slums, since Heidegger and Scarlet are no longer around. The Light of Holy reaches out and tries to shield Midgar, but Meteor breaks through it. It seems Holy has failed. But then, from the planet, comes the green strands of the life stream, coming out to help bolster Holy. We see a brilliant white light, and then cut to the same image we saw of Aerith from the very start of the game. In the opening cutscene, this is our final image before the credits. But we don't see what happened next. Yeah, that was the thing that really fucked me up. Mm-hmm. It's implied that most of the people in Midgar survive, but we don't know that for sure. Mm-hmm. Red's last words that we hear is, forget Midgar, what about the planet? Which made me feel that, oh, the whole city's gone. I don't know whether or not it took out a few of the support beams that held up the high plate while they were there, so all those people could have been flattened. We don't know that. Mm-hmm. And we're not actually really told. The only answer we get as to what happened was after the credits, we got a small scene, 500 years in the future, where we see an ageing red who were told ages slower than regular human years, running through with his two cubs, climbing up a cliff and looking over to see the ruins of Midgar, overgrown with the greenery of nature, and this serves as the end of Final Fantasy VII. See, what that said to me was that it was only Midgar that was destroyed, all the other villages were okay, as far as we know. Yes. We did find out earlier that Marlene was moved to Calm and actually watches the meteor in the ending. Yeah. I was watching the credits just agonisingly waiting for a post-credit scene. Like, this can't just be it. It's not just this. There's going to be something explained afterwards. I worked so hard to save the planet and it didn't matter. I worked so hard to save the planet and it's gone anyway. Mm. As far as I know, it was. I saw all this destruction. That's the last I've seen. Like, in my head, Aerith had a hand in having the planet help itself and heal itself again. She's like a symbol of, like, all things good, pretty much. Mm-hmm. But it was not known for certain. And with that, we finally conclude the story of Final Fantasy VII. <laughs> much like the meteor that just fucked up the planet, you can imagine the impact this game had on the gaming world, on its release. Yeah. It went on to be an absolute sales and review superstar. You could say it was a sales supernova. If you find any greatest games of all time list made after 1997, it is a fair bet to always expect Final Fantasy VII to appear somewhere on the list. Yeah, absolutely. 
is easily considered to be the most successful Final Fantasy, to the point where it sadly achieved the status of being too mainstream for gaming hipsters. Mm, yeah, of course it is. Final Fantasy VI or Final Fantasy IX would be considered the greatest Final Fantasy to the true fans. With cheeky little air quotes in there. Yeah, and to be fair, they're both brilliant games. Any given day, I could argue that either is better. Yeah, I'd be a fool to leave Final Fantasy VII out of that discussion, though. Mm-hmm. With all the loose ends that the game left behind, they announced that they were making something called the Compilation of Final Fantasy VII. Four new projects, all set to complete the story of Final Fantasy VII. An action RPG sequel called Dirge of Cerberus, starring Vincent Valentine. A prequel about Zack's time in Soldier called Crisis Core, which ends at the events in Nibelheim. A prequel where we follow the Turks called Before Crisis. And the most well-known piece of media from the project, a 3D animated sequel movie called Advent Children, which follow Cloud and Tifa's lives after their final battle with Sephiroth. Right. There is, like, other story to fill out. We don't know very much about the Turks. We don't know very much about Zack. We don't know anything at all about Vincent, apart from the fact that he's an emo vampire boy. And we also don't know what happened to Midgar after Meteor hit. I'll say it here. All the projects so far have sucked hard. Right. I liked Crisis Core, but had never released I would have been fine. All the rest, though, are bad. So you could say that Dirge of Cerberus was, in fact, a dirge to play. Yes. And Advent Children was an absolute snore of a movie. To all of us that got excited for the announcement, it was painfully clear on execution that it was Square Enix trying to claw up any excitement for the Final Fantasy series after some very poorly received releases. Hang on, so when was this released? About 2005-2006, on the heels of Final Fantasy XII, which was not very popular when it came out. Ah, right, okay. And of course, we've currently gone through the remake that came out in 2020 on PS4. That Final Fantasy VII remake has been rumoured since they did a tech demo for the PlayStation 3, where they remade the intro in better animation. Oh my god, seriously? Yeah, they've been rumoured to make the sequel for so long, they finally pulled the pin with the first part of the remake coming out in 2020. I actually did have you try the bombing mission from the remake. Mm -hmm. How did you find it? Um, It's very different to the original, which threw me. I was expecting it to be more similar. So instead of you going into something a bit more turn-based... It's just like your usual action type game where you just have to keep hitting the villain until it dies. And then you can use magic by the menu which pauses the game. Yeah, I struggled to get my thumbs around it, but then I wasn't playing it for very long. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm more used to the system than it was before because it gave you a bit more time to think. It was a fun game, but I feel about it the same way I do as Crisis Core. If I never got it, I'd have been fine. This is not a remake. They've changed the gameplay from the original heavily, and they made it clear they don't plan to follow the story of the original either. What? We don't know yet, because we've not seen the second game yet. I hope you're wrong. I really hope you're wrong. It's a really good game, just as it is. It's got its flaws, don't get me wrong, and there's some convoluted storytelling here and there, but I swear, if they're going to mess with the ending and give us some sort of, like, closure-type thing, I'm going to get quite annoyed, because it takes away the impact of what it tried to do originally. It's why people cared so much that they wanted to see those sequels. Yeah. I honestly think nothing has ever ruined Final Fantasy VII more than Advent Children. Right. Explain why. I'm not going to. I'm going to show you why. I have in my hand here my brother's copy of Advent Children on Blu-ray that you and me are going to watch 
We are then going to come back after the credits of this episode and you're going to give me a small analysis of the movie. Right, okay. I don't know if I want to watch this because if it's going to ruin how I feel about Final Fantasy VII, I don't know. Is this a Pandora's box I want to open? Yes, you're going to open it so you have to suffer like the rest of us. Well, not the rest of us, like you did. You're wanting to make me suffer as you did. Yes, pretty much. This is our relationship, Jen. We share each other's pain. (laughs) In writing this analysis... I think I've had to come to the uncomfortable truth. I am no longer a Final Fantasy fan since around Sakaguchi left the project in 12. Right. However, I don't think that's unfair to say about the company. I don't think they're making Final Fantasy games for me anymore. Mm-hmm. They're trying to court a new audience that I'm just not part of. I look at games that Square Enix have released like Octopath Traveler and Bravely Default which play more like old-school Final Fantasy games, they can easily make these games if they want and call them Final Fantasies. But what they'd rather clearly do is go for this more action, RPG, very visual style that the series is now quite well known for and court that audience than court the people who want deep and fun mechanics. Right. I don't think that is a failing on Square Enix, that it no longer appeals to us anymore. Yeah. If we're going to consider art to be perpetual, you've got two options, which is keep with the same audience or appeal to a new audience. Whether or not it works is another thing, but it's still doing what it needs to do. These games still sell well, so clearly it works for somebody. Yeah. Who cares, I guess. Looking back at the whole game, I just want to get an idea to some of your likes and dislikes. First off, what's your least favourite minigame and then your favourite minigame? I was not good at most of the minigames, as we've talked about. But I think the one that I liked the least was the submarine one. How come? I was doing a lot of button mashing. It was very stressful. I was very happy to have a submarine. Mm -hmm. But it was nowhere near the same rush as getting the high wind. And you couldn't do very much with it anyway. There was one major underwater boss battle to have, but you were in no condition to have it at your level. Yeah, was it like one of the weapons? Yeah. Yeah. Nah, I didn't have much use for it. My favourite minigame was the chocobo racing. I like that. I found that a lot of fun. How come? It's like an easier Mario Kart. The controls are very accessible. The chocobos are cute and the music's fun. Yeah, I'm a simple gal who likes simple games. Yeah, the music is fun, but if you avoid the Captain Races reference that we definitely have in this edit. Yeah, sorry about that. It was a different time. Yeah. Let's get into a character tier list as well. We'll go back to the system we used in Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat and go from F tier to S tier. So starting off with the F tier, who you got? Vincent. Why? He is the sidest of side characters. Mm. His plot event is not very good. His backstory is kind of weak. I also didn't play as him very often. I just didn't think to. I already had loads of people in my party. I think you only really used them a lot when Sid was in control of the party. Yeah, I thought, well, better give Vincent a test run. Mm-hmm. It's really telling where I feel like I have to play a character out of obligation. I probably should have had him be in the fight with Hojo, that boss fight. Gives him something to do and makes sense for his character, considering the beef he has with Hojo. Which, fair. Mm-hmm. On to the D tier is Yuffie. Mm-hmm. she's a thieving bitch who doesn't redeem herself at the end no again being the other additional character she doesn't really get much of a chance to redeem herself she does help out when you've been captured by shinwa yeah her in-game event is quite good though one good thing that came from her event 
was seeing the demise of Don Cornetto. <laughs> Wait, uh, no, it's not Cornetto, is it? It's Cannoli. Cornholio. Cornholio, yeah. <laughs> that was it. Her, like, last line from that quest is that I might steal from you again, I might not. That's not like a redeeming thing. A redeeming thing would be, thank you so much for saving me. I promise I won't steal from you again because you've really done me a solid. She's in the D tier because of that. Understandable, yeah. She is like kind of cute, kind of adorable. And you can probably have her redeem herself a bit more in gameplay. But in the game's plot, she doesn't really. In the C tier is Cat She. Mm-hmm. Because Cat She betrays me. And I was so fucking angry. I didn't think he'd ever redeem himself, to be honest. That whole sacrificing himself at that shrinking temple place for the black materia, that was not like a major sacrifice because he turns up like two minutes later with a brand new body that's literally just the same as the other one. How he is redeemed in my eyes is how much he helps the town of Midgar at the end of the game. Mm -hmm. He takes charge and makes sure that as many people as possible are in the Undercity. So who's going in the B tier then? Cloud and Tifa. I made it very clear that I disliked Cloud for a good chunk of the game. But he did earn my respect the longer I played as him. I even missed him in that portion where he was gone for a whole bunch of time. Mm -hmm. I think the disadvantage is is that he never properly won me round and I still don't know who he is really. He's still going to be going through that journey after the story ends. That whole finding who you are is an ongoing process and for some people it can take them decades upon decades to find that out. And I've got plenty to say about him and his journey, as you've heard. (laughs) Tifa... I like Tifa. She established her moveset quickly, though it was mostly brawl attacks. You wouldn't really think it first looking at her. At first I wasn't sure about her, but then she proved herself in battle. Mm -hmm. And she really stepped up when we needed a leader after Cloud was missing. Mm -hmm. It really does go a long way. On to the A tier then. First in the A tier is Aerith. Yeah, A for Aerith, makes sense. It's not just that. Mm -hmm. she's so sweet the embodiment of good that she is throughout this episode and a very strong fighter i wish i played as her more but i suppose i was always worried about putting her in too much danger this fruitless venture into trying to prevent her from dying like i knew she was gonna die but i was like oh god if i have her in this battle will i lose her that sort of thing Welcome to the mindset of everyone who's going to be playing Final Fantasy VII Reunion when that comes out. Also, that date with the gold saucer was a really sweet moment. That was only for your playthrough. That could have been Tifa or Yuffie or Barrett. She also has loads of sweet moments with Cloud and the other characters. Mm-hmm. Especially when she first asks Cloud out. She's like, I need a bodyguard. You can be my bodyguard in exchange for a date. Flutters eyelashes furiously. I love that. That was iconic. <laughs> So I'm guessing that you're going to stand Aerith in the ideal Final Fantasy VII wife. Probably. Because, <laughs> like, I don't know, is that a normie choice? I don't know. I'm Team Aerith and our editor Mark is definitely Team Tifa. <laughs> yeah. Next in the A tier is Sid. Yes. My personal S tier, but how can we made your A tier? It's just because I really didn't like him at first. So it's just the way he sells himself at first is why he's A tier. Pretty much. Well, why do you like him then? Let's put it that way. I like the airship. 
He got me the airship. Okay. Get me a man who'll get me an airship and a whole fucking crew. <laughs> he did show the good principles and he did care a lot about Shira, I think her name is. Yeah. I don't know if he really cares about the state of the planet, which was a bit off-putting, but yeah, he only very narrowly missed the S tier, if I'm honest. That's your loss. He's chilling in mine. Yes. So who is in your S tier then? Barrett and Red. Okay. We'll go Red first. His backstory was good. It's kind of the opposite of Cloud and Sephiroth. Instead of him having a proper meltdown when he realises who his like, father figure is, he has a really good experience. He originally thought his father was a coward who ran away when his town was invaded. But actually, his father died protecting the town. Mm -hmm. So Red finds out the truth and decides that, oh, my father was such a good man and I'm going to carry those qualities that I realise he has into who I am and my journey. And that really moved me. I cried a bit. Mm -hmm. How about Barrett then? How has Barrett made the S tier? I liked Barrett from the very start of the game. Yeah, I think being the big eco-warrior won you over quite quickly. Yeah, yeah, it really did. He's also a good dad. I don't know. I can't fully get behind someone who leaves their daughter in a bar all day. I know, but like, I think he does try. He does care, yeah. A lot of what he does and for saving the planet is because he wants his daughter to live a full life. You can't live a full life if your planet's dead. True. A parent who tries goes a long way. Mm -hmm. It's good to see that representation in games, especially in a game that's full of terrible father figures who don't try mm -hmm. or aren't there or are dead. He's got good moral values, I think. Even though he has had to resort to violence and blowing things up, it's from a sense of frustration and not getting things done. If you don't fight back against evil, it's just going to steamroll over the top of you. There's some things that you've got to fight for. Mm -hmm. And also, I think Barrett's my waifu. Fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> Give me the date with Barrett the fucking Coldplay. Even though he'll be... <laughs> Even though he will complain and call me a dick the whole time, like, fuck it! Haha, <laughs> 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 subverting expectations. So, after that gargantuan playthrough, what are the final thoughts that you're taking away from this game? This game is really ahead of its time. How so? We're barely halfway through the Screaming Twenties, where it's a technophile dystopia and the planet is dying mm -hmm. because the corrupt people in power and our reliance on fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. And we're all fucked. Yeah. 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 Very relevant. There's definitely a lot in this game that rings true today, as it did 25 years ago. Yeah, it's really a very timeless story, actually. Mm -hmm. It's also a good example of what's called diesel punk. I think we mentioned this in our first half as well, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. Diesel punk is a subgenre of retrofuturism science fiction. So a bit like steampunk, but instead of their world's tech being based on steam power, it's based on diesel power and draws aesthetics from between 1918 and the 1950s. The punk in diesel punk steampunk, cyberpunk and other genres like it refers to the countercultural ideas that are central to these narratives. It makes me wonder what the medieval version of diesel punk would be. I got you covered. It's called candle punk. Ooh. Because of the candles. That actually sounds kind of fancy. It does, doesn't it? Another thing worth including when discussing like diesel punk and other retro futuristic genres is the postmodernist thinking. 
it's based on the idea that what we've held as truth isn't really so simple as we thought. Mm -hmm. It comes with an awareness that our knowledge is limited because it's based on what we know in the now. It was a paradigm shift in reaction to events like World War II, the Cold War, civil rights movement, post-colonialism, and the rise of the personal computer. Another thing that I gathered about postmodernism is its relationship with the past because mm -hmm. it is a reaction to what's been before. For example, the ancients symbolized the idealized version of the past that we mourn and want to reclaim. The idea of the ancients are revered like right throughout the game. Mm -hmm. We never really do find out a lot about the ancients in this game. Mm -hmm. The only thing we really see is that they have a connection to the world and their connection to the abundance of macro energy, which turns out to be the life stream. Yeah. But other than that, it's not like they have some innate ability to use magic or anything. Uh, yeah, that's kind of as close as you can get with the life stream. That's my understanding, at least. I'm sure there's some Final Fantasy VII religion out there that'll tell me otherwise. Let's not get into those. We've briefly brushed over it, and I think that's as much of a brush as anyone needs with that part of the internet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> The closest we get to this promised land is the North Crater. Mm. It's sure beautiful in its own way, but it will never live up to the hype. Mm -hmm. For me, I've always taken the promised land to be the life stream. Yeah. And the abundance of Mako energy is the life stream energy that Bukit Hagen told us about, being like heaven. Yeah. I guess that just depends if you see the promised land as a physical or spiritual place. I didn't think it was a real place. Mm-hmm too good to be true i mean it makes sense for the promised land to be a place of fable because a lot of this game does draw a lot on the faith of judaism right the sephiroth is a thing in the jewish faith right what is it as far as i remember the sephiroth are the 10 attributes of kabbalah mm -hmm. i can't say anything more confidently about the subject i don't really understand the entire thing but it just goes to show that there's a real connection from final fantasy 7 to the jewish faith that I always just saw the promised land of being like the land that Moses guided the freed slaves to in the Bible. Yeah. As far as I gathered from that story in the Bible was that they made their own promised land. I don't know anything near enough about that faith, which is a shame because I went to Catholic school. <laughs> oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah, Aerith says that it's more a state of mind than an actual physical place. Mm -hmm. And she's the only ancient left who would know anything about said promised land. Mm -hmm. And yet, they don't actually listen to her. They don't take her for her word. And one of the people who wanted to find the promised land kills her. Mm -hmm. She's the only ancient that's not been corrupted by Shinra. Instead of like seeing her as a person to talk to and tap into her knowledge they just see her as genova like a macguffin dna that they can splice and take for themselves mm -hmm. she represents that pure goodness in the humanity that's sometimes lost when we're talking about Aerith, we have to see her as a counterpoint to genova and by extension sephiroth mm -hmm. Unlike Aerith, who we get to know as a person she fights in our party, we don't get that with Genova. Her energy disrupts the planet and she makes the world worse. Mm -hmm. At first I thought Genova was brainwashing Sephiroth for her own ends mm -hmm. and she'd have like a villain speech and come out and say what her plan is, but we don't really get that. Not really, no. We never know her motives. If she even has any. Genova is very strange to me. She has this point of being quite important to the plot. 
But her impact is very theoretical. Mm -hmm. The only real direct impact she has in the plot that you play are the four boss battles you have against her. Which become less and less intimidating as you go on. Yeah, they do, don't they? Yeah. Once you face Genova enough times, you find that she's not intimidating. By the time you get to the final Genova fight, she's pretty straightforward. You've fought her before. It's a bit like Cloud, and by extension, you, the player, aren't afraid of defeating the evil that's tried to define you for the whole game. Mm -hmm. The Final Fantasy VII series, especially in its extended stuff, Mm -hmm. leans way too heavy on Genova cells just being generic cause of evil in the world when really it's that's not the point it's not like genova caused all of this it's how people are reacting to genova yeah if you just left genova alone then you know okay maybe we'd fuck up the planet a bit but like any interaction that they have with genova is objectively making the world worse Mm -hmm. that's the point and i think like in the narrative them blaming genova directly you're right it is a bit reductive but you can also look at it another way. This physical thing is evil, as opposed to this vague concept of evil and how it can be in anyone. She's a bit of a blank slate. She's not really a character. Mm -hmm. Sephiroth can idealise her in any way he needs to. He clings on to her as a maternal figure because he doesn't seem to have one. What Sephiroth has ended up doing, because he struggles with his identity, is he bases a lot of what he's found and what he's learned into that, but it's all from books. Mm -hmm. He doesn't know any ancients, really. He doesn't know Genova. I don't know if you can really know Genova, but what he's missing from having learned about his past as an ancient is that humanity and goodness that Aerith represents. That lack of family has really fucked Sephiroth up. Mm. Whatever he can find about his family that he likes the sound of, that's what they're like. A bit like how Cloud has no identity and struggles with that. Sephiroth has the same struggle. Mm -hmm. Sephiroth handles that identity crisis so much worse than Cloud does. Mm -hmm. Burning down Nibelheim and killing everyone is uh, definitely a choice, Mm -hmm. (laughs) to say the least. Just like how Cloud idealises him, Sephiroth idealises Genova. It's kind of like passed down, if you like. Cloud didn't grow up with a dad, but he did grow up with a mother and an identity. Yeah, but we don't really see a father figure. I can imagine that he'd look up to Sephiroth in that way. Sephiroth is like a good bit older than Cloud, is he not? In the promise from seven years ago, we was talking to Tifa about going to join Soldier. He does say he wants to become a great soldier like Sephiroth. Yeah. So he definitely idolised him even back when he wanted to join Soldier. Despite everything we've talked about, he was still a role model to Cloud. Mm -hmm. Cloud wants his strength and fighting abilities, but that's the idealised version of Sephiroth. Just how Sephiroth idealised Genova and stuff. I see Cloud as the sun figure. He's the player character because he also represents us and how we in the present try to construct our identity. And I've talked about this quite a lot in the episode, but it's interesting that that's his journey. His journey is figuring out who he is. One thing I don't think I mentioned earlier was that another big part of Cloud's identity is the material you as the player give him Mm -hmm. and how you see him. Because Cloud stays in your party no matter what, it's a bit like you're stuck with yourself whether you like it or not. You've just got to try and make the best of it and play the game despite it. 
True. There is some very low-level statting that's done with the characters in this game. Yeah? Cloud is built like the old Final Fantasy job, the Paladin. Right. Where he's high damage and high defense. But Final Fantasy VII has always been designed in a way that if you didn't know that, you could still play the game quite easily. I've got a bit of blindness when it comes to stats because it's all numbers. It was a miracle I passed standard grade maths. I will also say that the job element of Final Fantasy was unknown to the West at this time. Okay. The games that definitely play about with job systems are 3 and 5. Both never came out in the West. Ah. So again, not knowing that puts you in the shoes of all players of Final Fantasy VII at the time. So Western players would be at a disadvantage in figuring out how Cloud ticks as a character to play. Absolutely. And trying to figure out how best to put his materia as part of his journey in figuring out who he is. Not just Cloud, but with the exception of Aerith, who is always definitely started to be quite weak but great with magic. Yeah, yeah, of course. It's easy to work out. She fits the role of a black mage or a white mage. I suppose that there's like crisis of identity throughout loads of different characters in the game. Yeah, so it is there if you know what you're looking for in the Final Fantasy series. Something I can do now, but I couldn't do back then. Yeah. Final Fantasy VII is a really timeless and universal story. Humanity's relationship with its past, idealising or even worshipping of ancestors, and how we construct our identity or find our life's purpose, is something that we as a species have been struggling with for as long as we've been aware of ourselves. Do we live up to the expectations of our elders in society or do we forge our own path? Or do we try the artful balancing act of trying to achieve both? Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why it was definitely on our list to pick up as a game we have to play. There's so much to get into. But that's just even just one small look at the complex story it tells. I will say that I completely understand why people had this blueprint and wanted to spin it off into more stories. There's so much more to talk about. I can understand why they made a spin-off game of Vincent's story, considering he got nothing in the actual game. Mm -hmm. That cutscene is barely anything. Yeah, absolutely. The world of Final Fantasy VII is also, like, it's got a lot of charm. There's lots of nice places to explore and people to meet. So I can understand why people would want more of that and feel that they didn't get much of that at the ending. Mm Mm-hmm. Maybe they feel like the ending didn't really give much closure and there's a whole big gap where that credit sequence was. Effectively, that credit sequence lasts 500 years. Mm. There's so much to talk about as to what happened in that black void of letters. Yeah, but it just turns out everything that happened is just basically Genova cells are bad. <laughs> and now we listen to the voices of the live stream as they call out to us in the form of listener submissions. Yes! Listen out for the listener submissions in the live stream. The Switch Up podcast, at Switch Up Pod, writes in with, Played through the original in 2021, after watching a playthrough of Remake. Even though I knew the major beats, it was still a fascinating and emotionally driven ride. Mm. It's evident that this game has a major impact on people, and must have been world-breaking back in 1997. Must have been, yeah. It absolutely was. I had never read a game better than this up until that point. It is an incredibly good read. It's probably the first video game where I got obsessed with the story outside of like a cartoon existing about it. Yeah. I mean, apart from the spin-off media. Yeah, well, that didn't exist back when I was a kid. <laughs> that's true. I suppose that's the reason why the spin-off media exists. True. But it is also quite interesting to hear people who have played the remake and gone back to see this. Yeah. Partly because you're going to get the whole story, which you're not going to get from the remake for a while now. If they tell the same story. It'll be very interesting to see my thoughts once it's complete. 
Yes, if you're interested in going back to playing Remake. Yeah. A Random Gamers podcast at A Random Gamers Co. writes in with, really great game, though the story was crazy with its twists. Oh, yes. And sure, some things were a bit wonky, but I didn't mind it much since I know I was playing a very old game last year. Yeah. The themes we're in were smartly done, and I appreciate the small, funny, dorky moments in between. But boy, that mood whiplashed, with clouds snowboarding after going through the traumatising event sure was something else. Yeah, absolutely. One thing that I think was a bit wonky that you might be referring to is how they talk about cloning. It was very, very complicated and convoluted. And a bit weak. Yeah, it's like, stick to one or the other. If it's genetic augmentation, call it genetic augmentation. Cloning makes me think that Cloud was born in a test tube the whole time, which he wasn't. But that's also what they imply when he's like, you're a puppet, you don't exist. Mm. The main fuckiness is why the whole convoluted additional series exists, because it all exists in the quagmire. Yeah, I'm sure it does very little to clarify things, if what you've said is true. Hmm. Reliving Retro Podcast, at Reliving underscore Retro. One of my favourite RPGs ever. Truly one of the most intimidating antagonists of any video game. Yes. Oh my god, Sephiroth is really intimidating. The minute I saw him through those flames, that was it. Nightmare fuel. Wouldn't want him at my doorstep with his massive sword. That euphemism. (laughs) I mean, there are some people who would like him on their doorstep with his massive sword. (laughs) But I don't think I'm one of them. I don't know with Sephiroth. I don't know if I'm just being too pedantic, but I would kind of put the final villain of Final Fantasy VI as my favourite of the Final Fantasy series. Right. Kefka is set up as a joke character through most of the game, but it's in the last third of the game where he truly arrives as the main big bad of the series. Oh my, is it like how Jar Jar Binks is like actually a Sith master the whole time? <laughs> I'm going to explain this in a way you'll understand. We didn't really talk about him much. In this game, there's a head of the space program called Palmer. Yeah. Who's this big fat man who we fought in Rocket Town. Who would not fit in the rocket. Yeah. Yeah, that's why they sent Sid instead. Imagine if it turns out that he had managed to summon the meteor and destroy the Earth. Ooh, that's a twist. Exactly, right? <laughs> yeah. That's what they kind of do with Final Fantasy VI. Spoilers for a game that's like over 20 years old. <laughs> Deleted Saves podcast writes in with... It really was a once-in-a-generation game, for sure. Sure, people argue in the present that it is overblown or not revered enough, but its place in the history and landscape of gaming cannot be denied. We did touch about this earlier, but yeah, there is a big back and forth on if this is the best Final Fantasy game or not. I can't really comment this is the only one I've played, but I'm sure I'll get back to you when I'm in the nursing home and I've played every single Final Fantasy game. I will go out on a limb here and say is that whether you think it's the best or the worst, there is no denying that it's the most culturally significant Final Fantasy game. Yeah, for all the reasons that we've spent an obscene amount of time talking about. The whole experience defined the JRPG, defined the PlayStation, defined the status of Japanese gaming. It just broke everything open. I really do think this game changed the world of gaming. Yeah, I'd say so. I'd agree with that. I mean, it changed my world. Yeah. I'll never be the same again. And I think that might be for the better. And finally, just a fun little story here from the Elder Trolls Gaming Podcast, where I will say have the best name for a podcast going. 
Yeah. Funny podcast and do highly recommend them. This was a big part of our lives. I, Nate, would watch Jonathan play for hours and hours and just be as engaged. Then I wanted to play, so I started the file and accidentally overwrote his save file. Oh, no. <laughs> Apparently, he had completed the game, so he was just doing some after-game stuff. But it did remind me of my brother and I playing this game together. It was my Christmas gift. My big brother absolutely played this game. Mm-hmm. Hearing Nate's story of how it was just this weird bonding experience between brothers just kind of shows that it was a great game to play together, even though it's a very single-player experience. Hmm. It's kind of a great way to play it. It's one of these games you really can play sitting on a sofa with someone nearby you. Which is basically how I was playing it. Mm-hmm. Thank you to everyone writing in. It goes a big, big way into showing how this game is just as accessible back then as it's accessible now to play. We've been talking about this game for far too long, so let's round up our thoughts on it with the three gens. The part you've all been waiting for. For last gen, did the game live up to your expectations and do you feel it holds up as a classic? I expected it to be good. I mean, it's a JRPG, my preferred genre I'm finding. And it's the game that brought JRPGs to the West. But I wasn't expecting it to be as good as it was. It blew my mind. I still tear up hearing Eris theme. Mm. And that Planet is Dying song still makes me feel really uncomfortable. Every time I hear it, I just get this real sense of unease because what happened when that song was playing? Yes, it's absolutely a classic. It's a masterpiece, in my opinion. It's not perfect, but there's so much to get your teeth into when analysing it as a text. We still didn't get around to everything. For current gen, outside of the minigames, what are your highlights of the game? And is there anything with the game which didn't work for you? There's like two different highlights to the game that I'm going to mention. The parts that are really fun and the parts that were most impactful. So the fun parts... When I first got into the high wind mm-hmm. and the mechanic was telling me how they all decided, fuck you, Shinra, we're going to become air pirates. Oh, that galvanized me so much. It was so good. Neil the Chocobo was another highlight. I love him. My boy. I didn't have time to race him, but Neil was not made for racing. No. Neil was a runt, but I love him. It's a shame I can't take him between Final Fantasy games <laughs> like I can with a Pokemon. <laughs> I built a bond with that bird. <laughs> Another thing that's a real highlight for me is with the soundtrack. Mm. The soundtrack is absolutely incredible. If you're not familiar with it, it is on Spotify. If you've liked the music we've played in this episode, go listen to what they've put in the soundtrack. Though what I recommend more is finding the Distant Worlds albums. Right. They are orchestrated recreations of the music from all the Final Fantasy series, with plenty in Final Fantasy VII throughout all the discs. Wow. Yeah, that soundtrack is a staple in my writing playlist. Mm -hmm. The epic journey as well throughout the world. I really liked the world that it was in. It was really charming and sweet. Most impactful scenes... There are a lot of them, but if I had to choose, it would be Aerith's death and funeral scene. Mm-hmm. I howled and cried. And the destruction of Midgar at the end with like the shot of Aerith's face with the green. And just watching the credits scene, hoping for some sort of closure. Oh, that was excruciating. Oh, trying to choose highlights of this game. Like, good luck. There's so many of them. What about lowlights? What didn't work for you? 
I don't think the side characters were given enough to do. No, there's a lot of characters who only exist for small moments of the game and are never touched again. Red 13 could leave your party after you go to Cosmo Canyon and he would achieve as much in the story. Yeah, I suppose I do like Red though, so I'm inclined to just be like, yeah, whatever, you can stay. But his arc kind of is complete after that story. The materia system doesn't explain itself very well. No, the whole game has a problem explaining itself well. Yeah. And the minigames can kind of jump out out of nowhere. I think you didn't really get much into trying to get better at them, though. Yeah, I mean, you can try and get better at them, but trying to do the mini games when, like, the world is falling apart and I need to attend to it now, mm-hmm. it kind of just wasn't how I wanted to play the game. Understandable, yeah. And finally, for next gen, would you recommend it to a newcomer? And are you interested in trying other games in the franchise? I'm very hesitant to recommend this to a newcomer. Really? Yeah, it's only because of the accessibility with the controls. That's it. For baby's first JRPG, I wouldn't recommend it. I mean, okay, if you feel you can do it, go for it. But I'm a bit hesitant just because there's things that don't explain themselves very well and it can get easy to get frustrated with it. There is the option to find playthroughs and things like that, but there is a risk of ending up stumbling on spoilers with those. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, the stuff like failing at minigames... It doesn't punish you in gameplay, and if you're not that strategic with your materia and it takes you a while to get, then you're not really heavily punished in the game, I don't think. Mm-hmm. But there are points, I think, that you would suffer quite a bit, and that's not made obvious at all. But there are lots of advantages to the game, so if what we've said just really sold you on it, don't let me right now saying don't try it as like a golden rule. If you want to try it, try it. Like, fuck whatever I think. I'm very interested in trying other games in the franchise. I think we have to get you on to 8 next. You've said lots of good things about 8. I would like to get your opinion on that. I have got that for my PlayStation, so I might download that and give you a shot. Oh, thank you. Let's talk about our next episode. And I think it's about time that we return to the world of first-person shooters. Last time we played one, it was to play the phenomenal Doom to experience id's eponymous doom engine but it's time to take a look at how the opposition lived to see the competition's build engine and when it comes to the build engine there's only one man you bet on next time we're bringing duke nukem 3d hail to the king baby oh yeah you got stories about Nukem? We want to hear them. Send your emails to startaquest.gmail.com or your tweets to at startaquest with your thoughts on Mr. Nukem's first step into the third dimension and we'll read them out at the end of our episode. And remember, if you don't send us stories about Duke Nukem, you like men drew mayhem for the PS Vita and we're telling everyone. <laughs> what? Do yourself a favour and never look this game up. Never look up the men's room. <laughs> Just don't do it. It's not a good place to be. For now, though, thank you very much for listening to all this. We're glad you stayed with us this whole way. Leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice or a comment if there's anything you want to add to the story. If you want to share your opinions of Final Fantasy or which Final Fantasy game you think Jen should play next, leave your comments and I'll definitely pass them on. I'm a writer, or at least I like to think I am. My poems and stories can be found on my website, jenhuswriter.com. You can find links to all the magazines and things I've been published in. 
take a read at my work for yourself for free. And my chat book, Keep On Spinning, is also available to buy on my website or through my publisher, Driech Publishing. D-R-E-I-C-H. Nice little Scottish word. We'd also like to thank Klutz for this episode's theme song, A World of Piano, available over at ocremix.org. Thanks, guys. Until next time, when it'll be time to chew ass and kick bubblegum. <laughs> it'll be a goodbye from me, Alessandro. And a goodbye from me, Jen. Quest completed. So you've now watched Final Fantasy VII Advent Children. What do you have to say about the movie? Side quest! Yeah, we're going to have to come back on that one. Well, we suffered, so now we invite you to suffer with us in the next side quest.